this week's episode of the Back to Back Films Podcast. This week, we're covering How to Marry a Millionaire and the Grand Budapest Hotel. As always, in order to have the best discussion possible, we recommend that you watch the two films we'll be, we'll be discussing before listening to the episode because of potential spoilers. I'm your host, Keith. And this is Byron. I'm Jake. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing well, doing well. Just got back from the Grand Canyon. Did a nice backpacking trip up there. It was totally awesome. Um, the I, I never thought I would see turquoise water with red dirt and green trees all in like the same location. It was pretty crazy. The chance of a lifetime type trip, like a bucket list type thing. Super cool. We were there for four days, and we had to backpack down and backpack back up. My fiance sprained her ankle <laughs> and had to hike uh, oh, all the way back up the Grand Canyon Uh-oh. on ibuprofen and, you know, w- one of those athletic wraps. But, you know, she beat me because we ended up, uh, you can rent mules, so she mealed her backpacking bag up and she ended up beating me up there because I was carrying like 50 pounds with, with me. But uh, it was a good trip. It was a lot of fun. Nice. How much is it to rent a uh, rent a mule? Let's see. You can get a mule. I think it's one twenty one for a mule, but it can carry four packs and up to one hundred fifty pounds. So wow. Yeah, you could theoretically have like four people send it up there, but oh, that's cool. I was um, I was stubborn. I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, you know, it was like a pride thing. I wanted to do it for myself. Nice. Yeah. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, it's been forever since I've been to the Grand Canyon, but I never went down. I just stayed on the top. Oh, dude, it's so that's cool really down there. Cool. It's oh, it's man. so it's like a thousand times cooler, you know. Oh, wow. If you yeah, look I've up uh, online, have, like... have a Sioux, have a Sioux by Falls that and, oh, and wow. have you ever have you ever googled that? I've seen like some of the pictures that you were talking about like super blue water oh, yeah. and stuff and I was dude. like, "What? That's at the Grand Canyon?" <laughs> dude, it's at the bottom, man. It's 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 uh I think it's limestone. I think uh limestone is is down there and you know, um just the minerals that c- come from that or is that? I'm not a scientist, so I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's blue and it looks cool. So uh made for really good photos. Um and I shot a bunch of video down there on my Canon 60D really fancy camera hey, that's um, what i shoot on so yeah but it's a great it's a great video camera because you have the um the screen that flips you mm-hmm. know so you can yeah. like move it around and easily like hold the camera up or you know hold it down to get a good shot but you know you have to be a good uh videographer to get a good shot anyways and a lot of my stuff isn't very good <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a good camera, especially if you got like a good like L lens on it. You know, it, it's really important that you have a good lens on it to make it worthwhile. It's true. What about you, Byron? Any updates? Gosh, um, not too much. Just been watching films, TV shows. Yeah. Um, yeah, not. Yeah, not. <laughs> I'm kind of jealous of the trip. Yeah, I haven't really done anything. Actually, I went. Beat I my that. trip. Try and beat it. Try. <laughs> <'Cause> last, <laughs> last Sunday, my brother and I went to Fort Casey um, by Coopville in Washington and uh, filmed a little bit. We filmed like this little door that we made that is supposed to look like a a door that would like 
hold like prisoners or something oh, <laughs> and uh like a you know a secret underground bunker so we like hauled this fake door that looks like like a, a metal like heavy door that belongs in a fort and all these people because it was so nice out were out and about like <laughs> at the fort every time we go there like we never encounter anybody were you and, trying to have it be like without people right yeah like okay. we just we we're expecting like nobody there so of course we show up and there is the parking lot is like completely <laughs> full and we're like oh crap well like it's like two hours to get there so it's not like we're going to oh come back later or come back another day like, right. like oh crap we'll just have to do this luckily the little area that we wanted to film in there's like this little switchboard room and has this really cool long hallway luckily it wasn't part of the main part so we did encounter some people that were kind of like curious about what we were doing and or just like curious about the area so we're like walking around but we made it work and then at the very end we're like putting our stuff up away and the state park ranger guy comes up and you know he's like talking about how like he's thinking that we're gonna need like film permits soon and i'm like 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 what like i don't know like i felt like it was a little bit of a stretch he was really nice but he was talking about how Washington State is gonna is gonna be asking people for film permits if they want to do any sort of filming or photography in their sites, and I'm like, whatever. I, I was like, that seems like a bunch of crap. Like, that how is are a, they? It's a lot of crap. Like, how are they supposed to like d- differentiate between like public and non or like personal or whatever? You know, like exactly. Like, right. Like, I don't know. It's like crazy. Twilight. Twilight versus you know any project that we're doing <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? exactly, it's like, uh, exactly i'm just shooting some random shit dude like yeah and i guess i guess someone complained and thought that we were stealing a door from the actual like fort which is pretty amazing it's pretty amazing <laughs> it's like okay well it either looks like we're refurbishing a door stealing a door or bringing our own door but I don't think most people would have thought that we would be bringing in our own. No, door. that's. Uh, I think that's honestly the most embarrassing one. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It totally is. <laughs> hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we brought our door. We're <laughs> just returning this door. Yeah. We took it a while ago. <laughs> but yeah, that was the only thing that I've done that was semi. I guess not. You know, usual. <laughs> what, what were you shooting for? It was for that proof of concept film that we're that we're still working on for that uh for imagination park um and it's just like a little little trailer for like a a, a, an idea for a tv show that they want to produce um so it's just like a little proof of concept film and only you know a few people will probably ever see it (laughs) but we're supposed to make it look as cool as possible um uh just so that you know maybe the executives will be like oh this looks like a legit project you know and then give imagination park like money to to do a pilot you know Makes so who sense. knows i mean they're the my producers are like super stoked about it and they really like what what nick and i have done with the edit and stuff so yeah hopefully <laughs> no, dude, fingers crossed yeah right <laughs> actually speaking of permits for filming though we went up to my girlfriend and i went up to vancouver over the weekend and because uh, we caught uh, Voyage of Time oh, sweet. in IMAX, which it was super cool. Uh, it was at the Omnimax Theater in Vancouver at Science World, and their uh, their IMAX theater is in the like I don't know if you ever seen what it looks like. It's like a big ass dome on top of the science building. Well, their IMAX theater is actually in the dome, oh, wow. 
um, which was cool, but it kind of made the image weird. So it was kind of like at first it was sort of uh, uh, like nauseating to watch. Kind of it kind of give you weird motion sickness because the way the the screen and stuff wrapped around you and the image wrapped around you, but it was cool and the film itself was pretty fucking awesome. Like I really enjoyed it and I'm we missed the first ten minutes of a forty five minute film which sucked, but (laughs) what we did catch was like, I mean. I really wish I could see it on like a regular IMAX screen, and I, I it's I don't think it ever came to Bellingham. Um, what what is the voy- What is that? It's Terrence Malick's documentary about like the birth of the universe and kind of like traveling through time to get to like where we are now. And it's kind of this experimental documentary that cuts back and forth and. Uh, we watched a version that had Brad Pitt narrating, and it's like a really sparse narration that's more like poetry than anything else. He kind of mm. just says these one-liners. That's cool. Which, it was cool. What was disappointing was they advertise it as... So, the film got released... When it was released, it was released in two versions. There was the feature-length version, 90 minutes, with... Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett, mm-hmm. who was narrating it. Mm-hmm. And I think there was more narration. Then there was a 45-minute IMAX version that uh, Brad Pitt narrates. And then it's got re-released in ultra-widescreen, which is actually apparently the version that Malik intended. And it's supposed to be narratorless. Like, there's just, just the music and the image. So that's how they advertise it. And I was like, oh, sick. This will be totally awesome. That's, like, what I want to see. But then it ended up being the one with the Brad Pitt narration. So I guess that was kind of disappointing, but the film itself was epic. So, like, so how long was the ultra? It's supposed to be forty-five minutes. Just okay, so there's narration. two forty-five-minute version yeah. ones, and then a ninety-minute. Exactly. Oh, that's so. I'd like to. It's so weird, man. That is different. Yeah, it's I, cool. Wow. And the Omnimax Theater in Vancouver was the only place showing it in like a two hundred fifty-mile radius. So you know, we had no choice. Damn. That was the only place. But, yeah, so I was actually looking up IMAX theaters, and Bellingham's got the only one in the area. You either got to go to Vancouver or Seattle to hit more. And for some reason, a lot of those theaters won't carry that version. So still elusive, and I'd love to see it. But Hopefully, if it comes out on Blu-ray, that it'll come like with all three versions. That, oh would, be really that cool. would be awesome. Yeah, that would be really sweet. I've been looking for Blu-ray, and I searched it and searched it, and there's no talk about it coming to Blu-ray, though. Oh, man. I know. Um, what? My disappointment. Why? Because it, it took him already, like, three decades to, like, get made, and it barely got made. And <laughs> it, sounds, apparently it sounds like It didn't Malik. make its money back, you know, so, like... Well, <sighs> throw it up on fucking... That's just a waste. Put it on HBO or something. HBO would take that. Right, right. Oh yeah. Netflix you think would someone take that. would buy? Someone will just that. like yeah. People want to watch it. I mean, know? if Netflix gave Dave Chappelle sixty million dollars for two specials that oh, were already filmed, God, yeah, that like they would totally get that. You would think, right? And even if the just that ultra widescreen version, or even I would take the the full feature length theatrical version too. Like I don't know. I'm that... actually kind of intrigued by the ninety minute Kate Blanchett. Yeah, movie. yeah. I'm, like, I'm interested. Yeah. I'm really curious about how much he cut out because it goes from like 
these really epic shots of space and it cuts into like people like there's this like little girl that it kind of falls around she's kind of just meandering in a field and then it it gets really micro and there was like this whole sequence where you see sperm trying to get into like an egg and you see like white blood cells trying to attack things and like it's all cgi but like and even space is cgi but the space stuff is just like totally epic and there's a lot of waves uh, terrence malick really likes water as a metaphor and for philosophical ideas so there's a lot of waves there was lava sky i mean so like how does it compare to like the beginning of like tree of life okay so that's perfect because uh the next day when we came back i was like really obsessed so i watched tree of life oh you hadn't seen tree of life before no oh yeah so it was the first time well that's that's kind of what tree of life is sort of Basically, yeah. so I watched Voyage of Time first and then Tree of Life. So basically, Voyage of Time is Tree of Life if you just scrap all of the storyline. If you take just the esoteric, philosophical stuff, and like the whole sequence with the dinosaur, the whole sequence with space, the I don't I can't remember if there's any microscopic stuff in Tree of Life, but take out all the Brad Pitt and the children and uh, Jessica Chastain. That's essentially what Voyage of Time ended up being. So it was actually really sick because I was like, well, we're kind of watching it again. And I love both. Both movies were like perfect, honestly. Like Tree of Life, I was awestruck the whole time. Yeah, Tree of Life um, is great. Great movie. And, and man, yeah. Lubetsky's cinematography. So like, good. Oh, so so good. good. And then I have it on Blu-ray. So then I watched the like kind of documentary-ish uh, thing behind the scenes of it and just them talking about it and like Brad Pitt talking about it like it's the way they made it too and because I'm always really curious like his more recent films have always been so um, experimental so I'm always like well how the hell do you script that so that you can pitch it right and I guess like his script was like a pack of papers mm-hmm. and poems and image and like photos that he like had and it was like there was no real script and the the only reason why he had like really worked was because he was working he had a producer that he worked with before who was like well i know what you're going for so you don't need a a real script you know so then that's kind of how it kind of got made and then brad pitt got on to produce and they had uh, a different actor initially oh wow who dropped out so then brad pitt was like well fuck it i'll act in it then and so that's why he's in it did, uh, when did they get Sean cool. Penn? So like kind of later sure. down the road, or I'm not sure. Sean Penn wasn't featured in the in the documentary, so maybe he came I, late. Yeah, I don't know. I I was wondering why the heck he was even in the movie because I was like, well, what has he been in? But he's actually been in movies like every couple of years. Yeah, Sean well, he was yeah, in he, he was Milk. Harvey Milk. Yeah, Milk Milk was 2008, I think, and even between then, like then and now, he was still in stuff too. Right. So, well, he directed Into the Wild, I think. Right. Yeah. He and did. That was dope. Oh, okay. That was yeah. good. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. But hey, so about this Terrence Malick thing, every week or maybe every once a month, I see an article that says like, "Is Hollywood making too many tentpole movies?" or Hollywood is destroying itself. And I I just think, like, Terrence Malick made Tree of Life based off of a scrapbook of poems and random thoughts. 
and he got his movie made. He didn't go through the traditional process, and he made this huge movie. So, why? <laughs> I guess my well, question is, why are there still articles that are like, oh, Hollywood's Hollywood is just about making money and blah, blah, blah. Obviously, they're also about making art, you know? It's art business. So, I, I don't know. I just... It, I, I feel like a lot of those articles are like upset because they feel like only Star Wars comes out, but then they don't go see all these other great movies that come out from all these fantastic filmmakers that are doing it for the art of it. And it's it's so uh, it's it's just stupid. <laughs> it's just I have an stupid. Answer. Do you? Yeah, I don't. Do you know I don't. Why? I just don't think Tree of Life is a Hollywood film. I don't, yeah, all, I don't, yeah. I, it's all. It's but it's all made through Hollywood. No, not really. I mean, it's all independently financed, like by yeah, Plan was. B and stuff, right? Was yeah. Plan B involved, or was this Brad Pitt just a producer? No, Plan B was involved. Okay, it was him. So, and like, his those partner. guys are all pretty independent. I mean, like they did, you know, Twelve Years a Slave and some some other films that got Hollywood attention, but they weren't financed by Hollywood. The other you know thing, what I mean? I'm not sure. That's tough. It's a, it's a weird, yeah. It's well, a, it's a, what I would say is the reason why is because. Malik didn't start his career making these movies. He started his career with Badlands, which shook the world, I guess, when it when it came out. It was kind of a, a pretty epic, like first feature film. And then he did. Uh, then Red Line was after. So what did he do right after I think, Badlands? I think he did Days of Heaven. It was Days of Heaven, right? And then he went on his hiatus for like twenty years. <laughs> um, his his constant he, hiatus that he's on. Yeah, where he moved to. Um, France, I think, was a big portion of that. And he was writing a bunch and writing a bunch. And then he came back and he made Thin Red Line. So his first, like, and then he did... Uh, uh, the New World. Uh, the New World, thank you. Yeah. yeah. He did The New World. So he made four feature films that were all what you could kind of consider more Hollywood films. Mm -hmm. So his name was established by the time he came back. And then when he came back after his hiatus and stuff, he kind of, like, took the movie world by storm and then it's only recently with uh to the wonder knight of cups tree of life i can't remember if there's one thing before to the wonder or not kind of no this is tree of life yeah okay so it was to the wonder and tree of life and knight of cups and then now song to song is when he started doing his like really experimental philosophical stuff yeah especially the tree of life because like that because that was for like three years in a row they're like oh it's going to open at you know the Cannes Film yeah. Festival it's going to be in competition blah 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 and every year like it seemed like oh just, it didn't make it in time it didn't make it in time and then that, and finally it came out uh, at the Cannes Film Festival and then like you know the whole film world was just like just so stoked because the 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 wait had been so long and mm -hmm. he kept saying you know oh maybe this year maybe this year um, and then when it finally came out and then he you know he totally delivered so I think he got a little bit overhyped because I think like, To the Wonder and Knight of Cups like the critics just I mean they didn't really care for those at all like especially so compared to Tree of Life I mean so I enjoyed sad. those two movies Knight of Cups and To the Wonder but I, th I think he made them too close together that it just seemed like he was making fun of himself in a weird way I think he's I think it was maybe better if or they may, maybe critics would have taken those two films better if, uh, or more seriously, if they were made five years 
apart, you know, like his other yeah. films or something. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. Well, the thing is, is that his new movie, Song to Song, it was actually shot at the same time as Night of Cups. So they were kind of mixed together. So there, apparently there's some crossing and I, Christian Bale might even show up in Song to Song. I don't know. I keep looking to see when it's going to play and I can't fucking find a time. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't seen To the Wonder yet. I will see it though because I'm like I'm Malik obsessed now. I <laughs> exper I love experimental films, man. Like once you kind of realize the whole point of an experimental film, it like, see, it's it's interesting to me though that you're seeing it in a different context than I am too because I saw them the way they were released, right? So Tree of Order. Life and Into the Wonder and The Night of Cups. I can see how if you hadn't have seen Tree of Life and To the Wonder and you saw Night of Cups, how that film would be so much better. If, if that makes was it Tree sense. of Life and then To the Wonder? Yeah, it went Tree of Life, To the Wonder, oh, okay. and then Night of Cups. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, like, and then, yeah, now Song to Song. But it's interesting because, like, I, I almost guarantee you if I had seen Night of Cups first, it would be my favorite of three. So but it's good. not my favorite. Oh, really? Just because I think – because I saw Tree of Life and I was like, oh, that, that was, you know, a really good, solid film. You know, it was something very unique and different. No, there's no other film quite like it. Um besides elements of his others right um and then when um to the wonder came out i was just like ah. like it was good but it seemed like it was like people were expecting another tree of life right and it wasn't anything like that when it came to just how like epic it was you know it was smaller which is cool and it's always cool that directors do that too but i don't know it was just a lot of the same and then knight of the cups like the, the trailer I was like oh my god this looks so epic and I love the idea of it and the character and stuff like that yeah. but then I was just disappointed because it was the same type of thing that I saw in To the Wonder where like these actors are walking around looking at each other and then there's like voiceover narration it's like okay you've done this in the last two movies like I, I don't mind that but maybe change it up a little bit maybe put a little bit more story in it or something or maybe because I didn't care about the characters at all you know, or anything. Mm. Like, there wasn't anything of that film that I cared about except for the cinematography. <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to care about that. I mean, Tree of Life... Okay, I would say that Tree of Life is more accessible right. than the other ones because there is a plot and there is a uh, inciting problem that happens and you do have to create some care. Like, he spends a big chunk of the movie is falling around the kid. Right, right. Like, a mm -hmm. big chunk of it. And that's actually kind of where I was like, well, it's kind of lulling, because I kind of wish he would cut away to some experimental stuff, but yeah. you you, just, you develop feelings for the kid and stuff, like, like, interest, and you kind of relate to the life that they have and stuff like that. But then Knight of Cups is like, Knight of Cups is supposed to play out like you're just walking through memories. That's why the majority of the movie is shot from behind Christian Bale because it's just you're you're experiencing him experiencing his memories essentially. So you're not necessarily supposed to be attached to him. I mean, I think the scene where he gets robbed kind of really speaks volumes about how you're supposed to feel about the movie because he kind of just stands there and it's like well, I'm being robbed and then you kind of just cut away yeah. like he doesn't necessarily like attack that problem so it's experimental films are not about attaching yourself to any person which I actually like that I, I exactly some of my favorite films are the ones that you're totally detached from any exactly. actor like when, I, when I watch movies I don't look for that but there isn't there wasn't anything else for me to grasp in that film so I was like well maybe 
the, the maybe I can care about the characters or maybe I can care about the plot but I didn't like right, there was nothing right. besides the cinematography but I mean I, I need to watch it again <laughs> oh I am gonna watch it again for sure but what I was getting at is that the point of experimental film is to incite an emotion. I mean, the whole point of cinema is to incite an emotion in you. That's why we have plots. That's why music plays such a big part in cinema, because that's what triggers a lot of emotions. It's why you want to follow a character and why we get excited with thrills and having someone go to the, you know, into the belly of the beast and come back out. And it's like, it's exciting, right? And that's the whole point of experimental films is that it's just a different way it, trying to really spark emotions so that's why I'm becoming really obsessed with them because they're hard to make they're crazy ideas and once you start realizing that it doesn't matter necessarily what images because he'll all of a sudden they'll be talking in a, you know two people will be talking and then he'll just cut to waves or like trees for one shot and then cut back to their, their uh, discussion and so you're like okay it's kind of how does that make you feel? You know what I mean? That's, that's the whole point of it. It doesn't, the, the sense that it's supposed to make, I mean, it's not supposed to make sense. It's yeah. Just, well, like for like for me though, like I didn't get any emotion out of any of that. Like I was like, Oh, that's a cool that. cut. That's a cool shot. That's a cool, like the whole time I was like, I love experimental films. I, you know, my films tend to be a little bit more, I'm, I like that themselves, the way they're cut or whatever. And like a good example would be like Only God Forgives. Like I would consider that kind of an experimental Definitely film. Definitely experimental. So like I love that film. That film I was like that I was into that. You know, that 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 film made me like, you know feel like, oh man, this is film, this is cinema. And it has a lot of the same things similar to like what Terrence Malick does, you know, hardly any dialogue. It's just mainly people looking at each other and there are some weird cuts and, it, you know, very metaphoric and stuff like that. But for some reason, I really dug Only God Forgives, but Night also of Cups. also way more brutal, though, too. True. Like it's a different True. kind of movie. And also, there's more plot and more character in Only God Forgives than I would, even in Tree of Life, like... And God forgive yeah, has yeah. a great production design to it. True, really, yeah. really. Well, same with like any Terrence Malick stuff, though. Too, you know what I mean? Like his stuff is just like the production design by uh, what's his name, Jack Jack Fisk, Jack Fisk who mean, did the Revenant, Mad Men, and oh, stuff like that. The I mean, Revenant, dude. he's fantastic. You know, he is so I think good. Jack Fisk did, did, he did, did Mad Men. I think. Oh, he did yeah, a lot of so Malick stuff, though. Right. Mm. He's, uh, Jack Fisk has actually been in a lot of yeah. big movies. And then, obviously, Lubezki has been his go-to cinematographer since um, right after The Thin Red Line, since yeah. uh, The New World. Cause I think, was it John Toll or somebody that did, did The Thin Red Line? And, yeah. And then after so. that, yeah, he's just, been, he's just worked with Lubezki, which is awesome. I can't <laughs> wait. I'm going to go through all of Malick's filmography now. I'm Have you even seen Badlands? Even, I've seen actually I saw Badlands and I didn't like it so uh, I need to rewatch it. And... It's cool, yeah, it's different. Have you seen Days of Heaven? No, oh, that's one of the my man. the one I'm not looking forward to because it's like that you know epic drama, romantic it's drama really or whatever. It's really not. It's really like minimalist and contained. Oh, interesting. I think it's very it's unlike any other film I think of that time too, kind of like Badlands. I think that's why that's you why know, Badlands like, worked, yeah. Yeah, I think it. I, I think you'll like it, dude. It's really good. And some of the, I mean, 
the cinematography of that film. Some of the dusk shots and stuff of the of like the farm yeah. and stuff. Oh man, and then the opening stuff. Oh, it's so. I cool. think it was mostly shot during the magic hours. Yeah. So like, Dude, that's it's, one it's, of the big reasons. It's yeah. really good. Man. And then he went into the war epic, and I love, love, love war movies. So <laughs> yeah, I, uh, and then two or the new world. I'm kind of like meh, but like I said, I'll watch them all. I mean, I'm oh, actually Malik obsessed now. So I love the new world, not because of the story or anything like that, because it's like Pocahontas, you know, but it's the production design yeah. and stuff is so cool because there aren't that many films that I deal with that time era I think it was Jack Fisk who did that one as well I think so yeah it wouldn't surprise it me um, but it, it, it hit that film is just really cool just the way it's again the way it was shot with Lubetsky the first film that he did with Lubetsky and just the the there's two different versions of that film though too there's a theatrical cut and then there's director's cut and I would not waste your time on the theatrical cut and only watch the director's cut it's so much yeah. better production um, design jack fisk oh sweet too, so oh, i want to cool. say the director's cut is like yeah. you know maybe 45 minutes or maybe even an hour longer than the theatrical cut so <laughs> what i think is interesting too is um after watching tree of life especially tree of life you can see how heavy the influence of that movie is on the revenant because well, Lubeski's style is... Uh, Lubeski's got an interesting philosophy where he doesn't believe that... So, like, close-ups in general <coughs> excuse me, and, like, medium shots are usually shot with a longer lens because it's more uh, appealing for the face and stuff. It doesn't warp your face in weird ways, so it's always shot generally with a longer lens. Well, Lubeski believes that you don't need that, and, like, you shoot with a wide lens and just get your camera up really close, and you can tell in Malick's films that the camera's always really close to his subjects and like to the point where one time you could actually see shadow on the face of Brad Pitt because like just it's what happens when you put your camera right up next to someone light has a harder time getting in so right there where the camera is closest to the face it kind of gets a little more shadow and The Revenant's kind of the same way where you know there's everything is the camera's right up next to their face and it kind of makes the face a little bit kind of wider and fatter and warps it around a little bit it doesn't have like the usual straightness that you expect from a face and like that's Lubezki's style and they utilize it so much because like The Revenant I don't know if there's even a long lens in that movie to be honest um, I think they do it a couple of times in Tree of Life, but it's generally like, just get the camera in there. Because, yeah, it was mainly all wide, yeah. Yeah, and especially with Malik, he he was big. He, he's got like a uh, idiosyncratic, is how he's described, style of directing. So like, I love this, I love this. So Brad Pitt's like talking about how they shot a scene, right? So there's a scene in Tree of Life where him and Jessica Chastain kind of get into a physical like altercation like she kind of is pissed off at the way he's been treating his kids or whatever so he like grabs her and he's kind of holding her but she's kind of pushing back right so when they filmed that scene basically what they did was he had him do the scene right and uh malik is generally against especially in his newer films lighting sets um so windows and natural light play a really big part of uh his movies so and the camera was all handheld for these sequences. And so it just had this really free form movement where there's no, there's no marks you have to hit. There's no choreography or uh, rehearsal. It's just do the scene and let's try and find some truth and feeling in the scene. So he had them act out the scene once and he'd be like, okay, 
yeah, that was that was good. And then he did this does this thing what Brad Pitt said, he torpedoes a scene. So he'll say, Okay, we're gonna do the scene again and I want that energy and, and whatnot and then what he does is he basically brought in one of their kids and put the kid in the scene. So then Brad Pitt's like, Yeah, so now we're trying to do these like kind of angry, hateful you know maneuvers and and emotions but we're trying to like keep it subtle because there's a kid here yeah like we can't go full bore you know like so malik does weird stuff like that where he just it's like fuck your scene we're gonna throw throw a you know wrench into it and see what happens so. that's that's fascinating because that's sort of what happened uh in a scene in aladdin uh when they were working on that early on really they, yeah they were trying to figure out like that it was when jasmine and Aladdin first meet and they're having a conversation and they were trying to figure out like how do we make this interesting because when they animated it and put the boards together it was really boring just a back and forth but instead they ended up throwing in Abu the monkey in the scene and they made Abu jealous of Jasmine so they reanimated everything to, to make Abu jealous that Aladdin is giving Jasmine attention and it became a really interesting scene just because of that, you know? Otherwise, it would have been a terribly boring conversation just back and forth. It's interesting how little things like that can add, you know, dynamicism to a scene. That's like where the drama is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, There's no drama. That's like adds the drama, you know? People can yell at each other all they want, but if they're, they want to yell but can't, that's fascinating. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So this is <laughs> so why cool. I'm, I've been looking into how Malik does his work, and because he's a really reclusive guy, so it's like. Really and then there's hard like to... no like really like scenes of him where you see him like work. Anything. Yeah. You know, it's exactly. like oh man. <laughs> he made a really rare interview appearance uh, in Austin, I think, for Song to Song. So I'd be curious. I haven't seen that yet, but. Yeah, because I think when it won the Golden Palm at the you know the Cannes Film Festival, he he wasn't there to get it or anything. Same with Tree of yeah. Life, yeah. I mean, that's uh, what I meant. Yeah, yeah Tree, Tree of Life, Life won yeah, the Palm d'Or yeah, at, at uh, Cannes. He didn't. He wasn't there to get it. And then he wrote oh. like a letter, you know. Yeah, yeah. So he's an interesting, <laughs> interesting guy for sure. Uh, so yeah, I, so- I I wanted to say, yeah, yes, you guys are right. Tree of Life was independently financed. I went and looked it up because uh, I was like. Oh, I guess I should know that. Um, but yeah, totally independently financed by Bill Pollard, who's apparently done a ton of financing for a lot of great, great movies. Um, that's the guy who, uh, that's the only reason Tree of Life got made was because of that guy. Because of that guy, yeah. And yeah. But he's also been, uh, he's also financed a lot of movies like Brokeback Mountain and Into the Wild and Food Inc., all movies that we just talk, talked about. Um, yep. Which is funny. 12 Years a Slave, Wild, A Monster Calls. Um, some of those are also like joint with a studio. Um, but as far as, I mean, as far as this guy being in Hollywood, I would I would argue that he's still in Hollywood because he's making all these movies. True. Yeah. So, Terrence, Mal- he's Terrence not- Malick or the producer? The producer. Uh, the, the producer. Um, yeah, he's, he's definitely yeah. Hollywood. But yeah. he definitely, is, yeah. it is like independent Hollywood because he's occasionally like working with studios and he's but he's also working on these huge movies with a lot of money and and big people it's he's just not really a studio like when he's not one of the big six see which is awesome that he's not like he's not like a weinstein or uh you know one of those guys but yet he's he's in it you know like (laughs) yeah he's he's like making it work but apparently uh they have a billion dollar financier 
um, who owns the Minnesota Twins. So there's a guy who owns a baseball team who is basically financing all these movies. So thank you to that guy. (laughs) Yeah, dude, if I was a billionaire, I'd finance Malik. I'd be like, I don't care what you make. I don't make it. Here, here's money. There's that lady, um, uh, Megan Ellison, I believe, who, you know, she has, I think it's Anna Perna Pictures. Okay. And um, she's the one that basically self-financed... Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master and Inherent Vice and yep. a whole bunch of these other films. And yep. she's just uh, she's the daughter of a of a Silicon Valley, you know, billionaire or whatever. And she's into m- making films and she's got all this money. And well, that's how like, um, why not? Spike Jones does it. Spike Jones. Oh yeah. Uh, he's I can't remember what he's an heir to, but he comes from a rich family. Oh wow. And knows people and surprise, money surprise. So yeah. So but I don't know. I want to talk about him later because I have like. I mean, he makes really good movies, but I kind of hate him just because of the fact that he's, you know, he seems like a super nice guy, too, which makes me hate him even more. But, uh, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about him, I think, more specifically. That'll sure. be a, a Keith exclusive where Keith just, like Byron and I won't be here. Keith will just talk into the mic. I'll just start a wall that he hates rant about, about Spike Jones. That'll be my birthday he's episode. Like a, That's his birthday, birthday episode. <laughs> Screw you guys. I'm just going to go rant for a at, while. At the he's end, like, he'll be like, I, I still respect him, but man, fuck Spike Jones. Fuck him. <laughs> It'll be controversial because I'll be like, fuck Joss Whedon. He, fuck J.J. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you'll, just, we'll, you'll go down a list. We'll lose all our listeners. <laughs> yeah. It'll be great. No, I don't No, I don't hate those guys, but I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm a movie hipster, man. Can I say? That's, I think that's fine. As long as you're not a film bro. You know what I mean? Those are words. This is, this is why you're here. Cause you, uh, you, know, you see Fight Club? Fight Club's so good, man. Dude, Fight Club's I the best movie ever. Like, American like Beauty? All... Oh, fuck. You gotta see it, man. You, gotta you know what pisses it. me off about the film bro thing, too, is I think Drive is a film bro movie. And dude, Drive, Drive is, is a film bro cool. movie. Drive it's, is so good. It's a film it's, bro movie, dude. I know. Oh, yeah, but I see. But again, though, like, we probably liked it before it hit the masses. You know That's what I mean? Such a nah, you, guys are, you guys are But film it's bros. true. But it's so Just admit true. it. I will totally admit that I'm a film bro for certain movies because like there are some that like but the thing is it's like someone that will dress up as the driver you know from Drive for Halloween who's like you know a complete tool is like walking around he has no respect for film or what that film anything about it whereas like we you know respect everything at least me and Keith <laughs> I think this wounding reffin like well, stands for I, I, res- I respect it too <laughs> so like I don't know yeah I mean I, I, I'm i totally a film bro for Nicholas Winding Reffin's films for sure <laughs> yeah. dude Chris yeah. Nolan is my man you know what I mean I don't oh, give a Chris shit Chris Nolan in general is like the film bro like Inception's a film bro movie dude, for sure Inception that is I think that's the most recent film bro movie to come out yeah you think there's a more recent one Maybe Interstellar. Oh, you know, yeah. Maybe Inception. No, Inception more than Interstellar, I'd say. There's got to be yeah. a newer one. Let's see. Let's think. Uh, we need to add this to the website. We need to have a section of the website that is a list of film bro oh movies. Oh, my God. We should do an episode where we watch film bro movies like Fight Club. And, we'll start a uh, series, just the film bro the series. The film bro series. And it'll be, <laughs> it'll be our most popular 
series. God damn it. People are like, Bergman, I don't know what the fuck that is. Oh, Fight Club. Let's do it. Let's, oh, this is, a good, this is my favorite episode. Actually, you know, Birdman actually might be another film bro movie, though. Oh, like, Birdman. You know, because, like, cause like yeah. it, again, it's epic. It's amazing. But now, you know, everybody that's into film or film theory is like, oh, you could... You know, this means that, this means that, and stuff. It's like, which is cool, which is awesome. Like, I do that with films, but it's one of those ones, kind of like Fight Club now, where everyone's like, you know, 10 years from now, they're going to be like, oh, the best film of the 2010s or whatever was, you know, Birdman, you know. Just what we need, (laughs) another list. We we need more lists. I wonder if anyone wakes up and and thinks to themselves, hey, I think the world needs another list today. Top 10 underrated 90s kids animated tv shows on fox kids yeah exactly you know what i mean so like, who cares so specific. god so stupid Dude, letterbox is all about those lists Hello. i know <laughs> i know but you know there i found i i think they're they're almost satires like there was there was one who was like a list of uh like christmas movies where the there's two people on the front cover, a boy and a girl, and they're both wearing Christmas sweaters that are either red or green. <laughs> and that was the oh list. Oh, my God. Like, it was, it was a lot nothing of them to do totally with the movies. It, it was just amazing. And then <laughs> wow. one of them, I think, was just called Fight Club, and the only movie in the list was Fight Club. Like, that's funny to me, you know? Well, see, but then stuff. someone else made a list of all the Criterion Collection movies in their numerical order, which I found really useful. Holy yeah, that's, that's, that's great, but that's not like clickbait like here's the top 10 like if you're a 90s kid th- you'll know what these are you know what i mean it's not oh, like yeah. a scrolling I, through facebook some of those list. i get yeah wow There's i think so my much least favorite is the best the 10 best movies of this year it's like we all know what the 10 best movies of this year are yeah. shut the fuck up and it's not like, fight club <laughs> <laughs> the one list that i've been oh i have one list that's just it's called my uh rotating top 10 of all time and then the other list i have going is just what i think are the best um scores in movies of all time oh yeah i didn't really see a, a list that does that and i for personally i just i don't know i really love music in movies i think personally i think music is more important than the movie uh you can have you can't have it's really hard to have a movie without music and it's really obvious when there's no music um, yeah there's but, like no emotion it's like yeah. the emotion it's Which, like the, music music triggers memories of movies yeah the music is what you bring home with you after the movie exactly it's so interesting because like you guys have to check out michael Haneke's films because his films are basically there, there's like no music in them at all but yet they're so memorable which i love don't like, get me wrong i love it like and he, I don't know how he pulls it off, but it's like insane. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. Yeah, we should we could do a whole thing about that, you know, just like about um, music and film and and non music, you know, we di- have to. you know, diegetic film or uh, sound and all that stuff. That'd be it'd be really cool. Yeah. Which that'd actually, be, yeah, that'd be cool. That that actually ties us into How to Marry a Millionaire, which is our first film this Sweet week. Segue. Um, yep. So <laughs> uh, main topic for this week is all about aspect ratios. So we're going to be talking generally kind of what the history of aspect ratios are and kind of how they're tied to film. This episode will be a lot more technical than our previous ones because uh, there's a lot of history on this topic uh, and studios changing things and how we even got to even having you know widescreen aspect ratios. 
So our first film is How to Marry a Millionaire. It was made in 1953, and the film was directed by Jean or Jean Negolesco. I think he's French or something like that. Uh, stars Marilyn Monroe, Lauren Bacall, Betty Garble, David Wayne, Rory Calhoun, and William Powell, among others. Uh, it was produced by Nunali Johnson, or Nunali. I think it's Nunali. Shot by Joseph McDonald and edited by Lewis Loafer. Set deck or production design was by Stuart Reese and Walter Scoot. And costumes were designed by Travilla. And the dresses and costumes in this movie were a little ridiculous. Uh, it was the first film entirely shot in CinemaScope. A little editorial. <laughs> yeah, that's throwing <laughs> my that in the in notes. There. Ridiculous. No, it it's totally funny. wasn't. It's no, like on the, the IMDb page. The cover of the Blu-ray is Marilyn Monroe in a cut-off dress that is like almost cut off at her crotch. Like, yeah, it's so short, um, and it's just like all leg. You I'm know? not complaining. Not, <laughs> not my daughter. <laughs> uh, so it was the first film entirely shot in CinemaScope. So. Uh, oh, so with an approximate budget of $2 million. So I think it's important to point out that when you start doing research on CinemaScope and the advent of widescreen, there's three movies that get talked about generally. Mm-hmm. It's this one, The Robe, and uh, Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef. So you'll see that The Robe actually gets listed first. So it's The Robe, How to Marry a Millionaire, and then uh, Twelve Mile Reef. And The Robe actually was in production for a little while before CinemaScope, and then it was halted so that it could be converted over to a CinemaScope production. So, And then it was released. Uh, How to Marry a Millionaire was actually finished before The Robe, and then, but The Robe was more important, so it was released first. But How to Marry a Millionaire was actually the first one entirely shot from point A to point B in CinemaScope. What, wasn't, wasn't The Robe they decided to give that cinemascope first in order to build the cinemascope brand almost and then they really because they thought it would reach more people and kind of build that name cinemascope out so people would be interested in it that's what i, would that's Im- what I thought i would imagine that that's part of the reason got it i didn't see anything specific about that but you know like i think the robe with the story and the people who are attached and all that just made it more important Especially it being like a religious film, I feel like they thought that would touch a lot more people. It, yeah, and it and it did. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was it was yeah. a bigger bigger production, and it it was it is a movie that was more popular at at the time. Um, right, a type of movie that was more popular. Right. So yeah, the Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef was actually the third film in the line. So it was the second one that was actually shot from point A to point B in Cinemascope. Uh, the uh, How to Marry a Millionaire has an aspect ratio of 2.55 to 1. And to emphasize this, uh, if you noticed in the film, there's a pretty distinct lack of close-ups. I actually don't think there's any close-ups in the film at all. Nope. A- and there is usually at least two people in the frame at all times. So there's a lot of two shots there's a I mean Lauren Bacall goes into a room by herself so obviously she's the only person on the screen but the the framing is always wide it kind of shows the whole room from wall to wall to emphasize the that wideness because that was the point of CinemaScope it was invented kind of to bring audiences back to theaters 
Interesting. So, so yeah. C- CinemaScope, it's basically you're like when you're shooting it. I th- I think when you're shooting it, you're squishing the movie onto like a, a tiny like 35 millimeter film, right? Yeah. So and I have a so lot of technical con- notes about that actually. Yeah, you're like condensing it, and then when you that way you can still give it like a thir- like a projectionist a 35 millimeter film. And then the projector is created in order to stretch it back out into that wide. So it's not actually wider or anything. It's just like stre- it's condensing the pixels uh, horizontally and then restretching them out to how they're supposed to be uh, later uh, so when it, it gets projected. It actually is wider because, well, yeah, what, you're on the right track. So they essentially the lens that they have takes an image that's basically twice as wide squishes it onto the width of a f- what is called a four perf perforation 35 millimeter fr- uh, f- frame so that just means that there's four perforations uh, per frame when you're looking at a film strip or whatever and and then when you project it it's basically the exact opposite where the lens is used to stretch it back out so you are essentially fitting in twice as much into one frame, basically, which is kind of, I mean, it's, it was trying to do what Cinerama wanted to do, but in a, in one camera instead of multiple cameras, basically. Right. And that's how anamorphic and like, uh, Panavision, VistaVision and stuff work today too. Um, I love anamorphic. Yeah anamorphic you can always tell when a film was anamorphic because the way that especially like when it's uh, the things that are out of focus the shapes are generally more like, like ovoid shaped instead of circular and there's kind of the way the focus kind of almost warps around people uh, when they're out of focus and what plane is on in focus i think django django was one of the films where i think it's really obvious because he shot that at anamorphic yeah, and the Neon Demon, I believe. Was it shot? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was his first anamorphic film, I believe. Oh, interesting. Yeah, pretty sure. I'm actually... I feel like I should know that, but I'm not sure if that Let's was see. anamorphic. Because it's... it's well, you can shoot anamorphic on digital. Because it's the same sort of concept, anyway. Instead of a film frame, it's just the sensor. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, that's essentially what they were doing, and it was brand new technology. So was it? Shot? Yeah, the Neon Demon was shot um, in anamorphic with the Ari Alexa, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he loves digital. Uh, so the reason why I was connecting this to our music discussion just a couple minutes ago was because of the opening of the film, which is like an eight-minute gratuitous orchestral section. That is literally just the camera. It's like three or whatever cameras just shooting this orchestra playing, mm-hmm. you know, really yep. like epic music. And it's literally just that. Like there's no, it doesn't like tie in anything. It doesn't do anything. It's just, it was basically a way to showcase CinemaScope. That's the whole point of it was to be like, look at this wide frame that we have, guys, where we can right. capture the whole orchestra. We're showing the whole, yeah. Because the they whole even like or whatever. set it up to where the 
orchestra could be perfectly framed by the lens so you could exactly. like see it all so it was like hey guys look at how much you can see with this thing exactly yeah. no that's <laughs> that was the literally the whole point of it it was just to be gratuitous and right showcase and it was weird because that that music too was made in the 30s that particular song oh really by the same composer and so that just, was like, the composer who made the yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. But it was like he, it was never like really used. It was actually used in a few other films, but in small segments. So then they like, I don't know. I guess he must have really liked that <laughs> song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was, I don't know. That was a trip. Just having that, and then yeah, it just kind of leads. You're just in the film all of a sudden, and yeah, I I didn't mind it as much as I minded the beginning of the hatefully. <laughs> just a shot of an angel a statue of an angel at least the orchestra was like moving so it kind of gave you something to look at it's uh, so funny but that as an could... as an overture for the movie is just like to me this was way more interesting <laughs> no way yeah, it's so funny that yeah. you hate the hateful eight opening so much well no i mean <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I I was not a fan of the opening. I just I'm I'm just as Apparently, okay. Maybe I don't get the art of it, but the, how to marry a millionaire? At least something is happening. Apparently, <laughs> the reason why he did that opening was because spaghetti westerns. A lot of like a lot of those type of movies will have shots like that. Oh, totally. So yeah. it's supposed to be like Apparently. an homage to that. I mean, it's Tarantino, so it's hard to tell what is just like straight up gratuitous. And I totally not, loved uh, it. I thought it was awesome. I mean, I really like the music <laughs> when it played. We we probably need to bring up this shot every episode now because I think it's I think it's in each each recording that we've done. I think uh, so. Yeah, I know the Tarantino episode. That's why is I'm coming. laughing so hard. <laughs> I was like, "Damn, Jacob was really hate that shot." I uh, have a lot of hate. It's, you know? it's, it seems like such a random shot to hate. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Well. I think the, one of the big points of that opening sequence for Millionaire, though, is they're just trying to emphasize spectacle, and the whole movie kind of revolves around this idea of spectacle. I think that's why they have three of the biggest female names at the time in the film, because... So, so one of the questions I wanted to ask was, well, why was this one chosen for CinemaScope? Because I feel like, like with the robe, it was epic, so like... It makes sense why you'd want that because the scope of CinemaScope is to be wide and epic. That's why generally uh, westerns and sci-fi movies, those type of where sprawling vistas are a big point of where like in a western, you know, your setting plays as much of a role as the actors do. So you always want to get those shots. So the widescreen makes sense. Whereas this is just a movie. And so the whole thing was shot on set. Besides a couple of shots in the mountains, which I thought was weird. And there's no, like, epicness to it, right? So the, they had to basically go the other direction kind of with a different type of spectacle where you have this orchestra and then you have essentially what is... I mean, it's basically s- s- uh, have, using sex to sell, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's, a rom-com. it's a rom-com. Right. With, you know, like I said, the, the three biggest female stars especially mm-hmm. McCall and Monroe and the big chunk of the beginning of the film when they all meet up because they all are like well let's get this penthouse and try and find a millionaire is 
a lot they're kind of lounging around talking to each other and it's just all three of them in the frame so you kind of are getting like this look at all of them at one time for a, a you know big chunk of the movie basically until later when they kind of split up so i think that's i don't know what you had uh what you had found jacob but to me like that's for kind reasons. of yeah cuz like i couldn't think of a ton or really find a whole lot of reasons why this particular one was like going to be the one you know i i couldn't i i went to i went really went to one thing and that one thing is, or I, uh, two things uh the first is the business aspect so using cinemascope to kind of brand your film you know what i mean like coming off of um the robe you know having this thing like oh that was so cool it was like really big and you could like see a lot you know what i mean so kind of doing the exact opposite of that doing a rom-com in cinemascope maybe gets a little more attention um it also has some huge names in it so it's kind of hard to say like did people go see it for cinemascope or for marilyn monroe and her pointy boobs you know what i mean so it's like what exactly (laughs) you know it's hard to say like business-wise why this decision was made and it could have been they just wanted to try something different you know what i mean try something new and do it um but i i think one thing that cinemascope helps this movie is the only thing i can think of is that the costumes you can really always see what everyone is wearing at all times everyone is spaced out and their cost they're almost like mannequins in in the frame and they're always wearing something different and i think this movie got an award of some kind for its uh costume uh stuff or it's you know yeah costume um so i don't know i i feel like you didn't really need it in a lot of scenes but i think in these scenes where there's like the three of them like i'm on the wikipedia page um the there's the shot that says like plot um right there you can really see exactly what they're wearing and they all have enough space to like do sexy poses and i feel like that's why it was shot in cinemascope is to kind of highlight the women and what they're wearing and just give them the freedom to like move around um, i mean that, that scene you're talking about is literally like they're they're modeling for the guy and they actually do kind of become mannequins when they sit on the pedestals yeah yeah but even like in the scene where they're getting married like there's five people on screen and normally if I, i'm still on wikipedia there's five people on screen and they're you can really you can tell what they're all wearing and they all have plenty of space to like exist um and that, I just don't think that's something you can have without CinemaScope is, is that kind of freedom to kind of do move around where, where you want. And that in combination with the wardrobe, uh, I think is a, something that helped this movie. Um, I, th- that to say that's not to my taste necessarily. Uh, I don't really give two shits about, you know, the fancy new fashion or whatever but i think that some people a lot of people do and i think that having cinemascope helped that aspect of it but that's all i could think of is just that yeah like for me what i really liked about it was that the the cinemascope allowed the scenes to run longer without any cuts too the average um cut lasted 21 seconds in this film 
which is quite a bit longer than any other um, average, uh, you yeah. know, cut um, for that time. And it allows the interplay between the three main actresses when they're together like more freedom and stuff at least for me because like again like i grew up on like a lot of 40s 30s 50s films and when i started watching this film i hadn't seen it before i did notice that like i was watching something i was watching these characters interacting with each other and there's not like all these cuts or like you know normally it's like you know 50 millimeter or 35 millimeter lens is being used right yeah. And you cut around a table as they're talking together. But with this, they could like move around and there was more going on and yes, you could see their costumes more, which isn't necessarily like what you said to everybody's taste, taste but I kind of liked it cuz it was something different. It was almost like what Tarantino did for The Hateful Eight was, you know, The Hateful Eight primarily takes place in a one one location, but having that be, you know, being shot in 70 millimeter allowed um or 65 millimeter allowed the viewers to kind of see how all the other actors um, play with each other. So for me, I think I pretty much agree with what Jacob was saying was that I think it was there primarily to, you know, to show off costumes and stuff like that. But also I think to further the, the interplay between the actors, because I think the film would have gotten, I actually really like this film. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I think it would have gotten a little bit more boring if there was all these cuts with, like, you know, uh, Betty Grable's character, you know, saying something, and then it would cut to Lauren Bacall, and then it would cut to Marilyn Monroe walking into something or whatever it was, and they would just get boring because you're stuck in this penthouse or whatever or you're stuck in this lodge or whatever it is. It would get boring, whereas even though it wasn't these like western vistas that mm-hmm. or the the 10 commandments or or ben hur or something like that where there's like these epic historical sets or something like that um it still changed it up just enough where at least for me i was never really bored in the film but that's just me no well, i a- i wasn't i wasn't bored either um I, but i as far as needing cinemascope for this i think i would have still enjoyed it um, e- even if there were cuts, because I-, I thought the merits of the movie were really in its writing. Uh, I thought the the writing and some of the performances w- were kind of spot on, uh, and that's kind of where this movie lived for me as far as enjoyment. Oh, sweet, I, yeah. I see what you're saying though, where there I didn't. I guess I didn't really notice that as much, but yeah, I, I think part of what the reasoning behind what you're saying too is that they were trying to emphasize cinemascope right so you don't want to have a lot of cuts you want to be able to let the actors play out a scene i did notice that where especially when it's the three women they're all there's right center and left like there's they each have their position and whether or not it's background or foreground generally there's always someone in the foreground and they just they keep their positions and they can talk to each other and they can do all that. And then the camera might move, but it won't necessarily cut. If it does cut, it'll be like a different room or it'll be like when the guy's out on the roof or whatever. And, and it cutting back and forth kind of like that, or it's where it's cutting back and forth when they're finally all on their like dates or whatever. But I, I, that is a good point where I think that is another, 
and maybe it wasn't a reason why they picked this movie for CinemaScope, but it's it's part of help informing. Like since they did pick CinemaScope, that's definitely why yeah. they they stage it like that. Right. And I just I actually just looked this up. Um, is it? I guess it's Gene or John uh, Negolesco yeah. was actually a painter uh, earlier on in his life, so you oh, can wow. kind of see those influences where he's he's because the camera's static I mean the camera doesn't there's no handheld I, there might be some dolly stuff I think there's some dolly work yeah I was kind I of impressed with some of the dolly yeah. work and there's, yeah. there's like pans and and, and pans and stuff right yeah there's yeah. pans and tracks but there's no handheld so things are composed especially when you're trying to get foreground middle ground and background things are composed like paintings and I think that's part of the him directing this is because of that that painter influence, and you can really see, especially when they're like at the beginning when they're on the um, like patio balcony area, and you know they're Monroe is kind of lounging, and their other two are just sitting talking, yeah. but it's like this picturesque painting, and then even beyond that the whole thing was shot on set, so everything is matte, so it's like there's these paintings in the background, so everything kind of looks like a painting and the colors are really bright like a painting you know like jacob said earlier there's man they're mannequin like statuesque like in a painting you know so my favorite scene was definitely the scene when um they're they have to model for that gentleman uh yeah with like that i just for some reason i love that scene it's like it reminds me of my favorite scene in vertigo which is like pretty much the same thing where jimmy stewart's uh wanting to buy a dress you know and, and oh yeah stuff like i for some reason i find that interesting because it's something that is still actually done today but only in like super you know high fashion type of you know places like in big cities you know yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's something that's kind of dated now but i i, I like that because this is different and unique but the way it plays is kind of funny and it's i don't know it's kind of cool <laughs> it's kind of One a thing. nice peek into the past too right you know what right. i mean when i watch movies like this I like if they're dated in a bad way you know like m- maybe they make a, l- a lot of racist jokes you know and it reminds you of a time where you know making racist jokes was okay or making gay jokes were okay but when you watch a movie like this and you see the old kind of costume design and you you see stuff like that, you just kind of appreciate the fact that it exists. You know oh, what I mean? Definitely. And yeah. it like totally lets you into the at least the world that people wanted the 1950s to be. You know what I mean? Uh, right, I mean, yeah. one could argue this film dates itself in a bad way because there's some pretty like. I mean, the whole premise itself is pretty dated, and then the whole line where she's like, he goes to backhand her, and she's like, "Don't you hit me!" And like, I thought that like was she's so expecting it to happen. Uh, I didn't you know, think like, that was dated. I thought that was the whole totally, movie's pretty dated. Uh, well, I mean, that one, the backhanded line, I thought that was I, honestly, I laughed at that line because it was, it was like, it, it it was almost like the movie, like watching it now, the movie was like self-aware of movies that came from that time where it was okay to backhand women 
and <laughs> so well, that's fact, exactly right. it. No, yeah, I know, and that's why the joke. Okay. That's why it works. Uh, so I don't think There's that couple, joke yeah. is dating. But it reminds you of a time when it was okay to backhand women. No, because he wasn't like, going to backhand her. The, he was whole going point to. That, that was the thing. That's no, why she he wasn't. Was, yeah, that's why she was like saying that serious, like "Don't you hit me!" Like he was go- moving to like. Hit no, her. he wasn't going to hit her though. He was he was going to. Um, oh, he was, he was going to do something else. He wasn't. He uh, wasn't going to hit her. That was when she was sick. I think he was checking her pulse or something, or putting his hand on her forehead for her temperature. I don't think right? so, but you know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Uh, I'm almost a week removed from the movie now. So. What, what I, <laughs> I watched it t- today. I watched it last night. <laughs> One of my favorite parts, though. too, was um, when Lauren Bacall says something like, I, I've always liked older men, like the guy from The African Queen, which was Humphrey Bogart, and in real life, she was married to him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so that was almost kind of like this like meta-like yeah, yeah. thing. Which was, funny. I was like, that's awesome, especially for a film... Because, like, it was kind of like Julia Roberts playing Julia Roberts in, in, in Ocean's Eleven, right? Uh, right, right. Like, whereas, like, that yeah. kind of, like, wink to the audience. And I thought that was actually really cool for a, a film ni- in 1953, you know? Like, that, that was pretty sweet. Yeah, that seems, yeah, like, those kind of jokes. Like, maybe this is right around the time where people started getting more, like, information about Hollywood. You know what I mean? Where, like, you could actually kind of peer in and, and if, it, you know, if you're interested... Um. So I'm I'm curious if that's kind of where do you guys know when that was when, like magazines started. I think it was around out? this time. I mean, even before this, but yeah, the early '50s, especially. I mean, I think that was like, yeah, big. That time. was like a bigger like the celebrity right, time, right? Right? Like yeah, I'm just definitely. I'm totally guessing. I don't actually know. And it's and it's interesting too. I mean, like the casting of this film is is super interesting. I mean, like William Powell, who plays the older gentleman that Lauren Bacall's character likes, the oil guy. Like he was a huge, huge star back in the twenties and thirties yeah, and forties. Yeah. I mean, oh no way! And it's just interesting. I mean, the guy has like probably over a hundred movies, you know, on his um, IMDb page or something. I didn't, I haven't quite checked, but it's probably something like that. Because I mean, he he was a huge star, and then it's funny to see him in this film where he's older, but he's still playing someone that's kind of like respected, at least in the world of the of the film. And it, but he's he's he doesn't have he doesn't really show off his acting chops in this film. I mean, he did a fine job, but it was just kind of interesting. You have, you have this really well respected Oscar nominated actor in this film and then you're also you know the three main characters are these you know really famous well-known women of the time which you know Marilyn Monroe was just starting and Lauren Bacall had been a a household name and and same with Betty Grable and they both kind of handed her the torch you know after this film it was kind of cool it's an interesting film um time-wise you know and it's like celebrity culture I think yeah, that's super fascinating. Uh, and it, 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 I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> that's all good. I kind of want to <laughs> pull back a little bit and just kind of go into the history a little bit, uh, kind of building up to <clears throat> Cinemascope and this era. So essentially what we know of aspect ratios in film as we know it kind of started with Edison Uh, It started with three people, uh, William Kennedy Dixon, Thomas Edison, and Eastman Kodak, actually. So Edison had created his 
kinetoscope, which was essentially a, a precursor to projected film. And Dixon was working with him. And for one reason or another, I couldn't find exact specifics. Uh, Dixon was a photographer, and he helped settle on film a certain standard. So he helped settle on this idea of the four perf uh, 35 millimeter film with an aspect ratio of four by three, or as we know, 1.33. So the motion picture patent company in 1909 declared that 30, this would be the standard, this 35 millimeter film with a four by three ratio. And it'd be the standard for all films that were made and shown in the U S. So essentially trying to just create an easy way for films to be distributed and shown and how, so that all theaters could just be set up in this way and there'd be no hassle. Um, sound when sound came about. So this lasted for, roughly 20 years or so because sound came about right at the end of the 20s and the beginning of the 30s and when sound came about the way sound works with film it actually forced a shift in the ratio very slightly to a 1.37 aspect ratio and this became known as the academy ratio so from then on for the next, you know, about 20 or so years until about the 50s, this was generally the ratio that we'd have. I believe rope was also that. And you know, it, most films that it, you watch are in this ratio. And then that's how television was designed behind that ratio as well. The, the sound, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the reason it changes the ratio is because you need to include a tiny little strip on the 35 or whatever on, on the film strip for sound, right? Yes, like it correct. needs to like read a tiny little exactly thing of that. Right. So that's why the shift in ratio was really small because it just, you don't need a too much to change the film to incorporate sound. Um, so the 1950s, uh, cause this film was 53, I believe as when there was this shift. So, Right before CinemaScope, like literally right before it, was Cinerama. Uh, so Cinerama was developed by Fred Waller using a multi-camera and multi-projection system, projector system. And essentially what it did was it used a curved screen and it used three projectors kind of crossing beams with each other. Like the the rightmost projector would project to the leftmost part of the screen, center to center, left projector to the rightmost part of the screen. And in doing so, it would, and lined up correctly, it would show a wider uh, image, essentially, by by putting the ratios next to each other, or the, no, ratios, the images next to each other. This ended up being a ratio of 2.59 to 1. So fairly close to what CinemaScope, some CinemaScope, uh, became. And it actually used a seven-track surround system for this, which is really interesting to me. Whoa. That's, yeah, that's pretty epic sound for the 50s. I mean, a lot of theaters now will have... I mean, your home theater could have seven. It's interesting, you know? too, that uh, How to Marry a Millionaire was actually one of the first films to be recorded in stereo, too. Oh, yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. That's cool. So 1953... Makes it better. <laughs> <laughs> 
1953, eight months after Cine- uh, Cinerama. So this is what I'm saying, like literally right after. Uh, Paramount created the 1.66 uh, ratio. So basically what happened was there was I think I put this slightly out of order so basically there was this rush to um, widescreen like a race to widescreen when it it became a thing every big studio was like oh my god we gotta be on this every studio except for Paramount so what they did uh was they created the 1.66 ratio using the academy ratio of 1.37 and essentially lopping off the top and bottom of the image just to kind of give it a wider look but it wasn't the whole crazy widescreen look kind of just to make themselves different essentially um and actually a little fun fact about this is that's kubrick's favorite ratio uh, he detested the 1.85 ratio because it uh, cr- had a 27% loss in the frame of, of image. And he wanted his big thing. If you notice, actually, if you study Kubrick in his movies, it, it, and this is crazy because there's a whole controversy on how his movies got shown. He was so pissed at uh, what how theaters would do it and how the pan and scan system and like clockwork orange was actually shot in this ratio too i believe and basically his films if you look at the top and bottoms of the frame it shows a lot like there's a lot of space that he framed his actors in a lot of headspace a lot of bottom space and when his films got like when they were uh distributed and shown in theaters when 1.85 became the standard they lopped off a lot of that so like you miss a lot that was actually in the frame when it was viewed so there's this controversy about well you know where especially nowadays it's it's i think they're going back to the more pure cube kubrick look um and trying to preserve what he had and what he shot, but there's a lot of controversy around like how it was distributed and what he wanted. And Eyes Wide Shut was big about this because he had died and like he didn't get to fight for his film like that. Uh, what basically what really set him off was 2001: A Space Odyssey was shot at a two to one, I believe, uh, or it might have been slightly wider. But when it went to video, I think. Uh, they essentially did the pan and scan, lopped off the side so it was square, the 4 by 3 and ruined his vision of that movie. And he basically said, fuck you, fuck that, I'm never using that ratio ever again. That's a fucking travesty. <laughs> yeah. It's a travesty that they did that. Yep. That's insane. Yep, there's a really, really is it, interesting... Is it, though? Is it a travesty? Yeah, tra- it is. It's a travesty because like, for 2001. 2001, no, dude, 2001. Like, it's supposed to be, you know... Oh, my God, I can't believe they that cut needed widescreen Oh, my 2001, God. Like... I don't know. From the artistic standpoint, I'd be pissed. But from a business standpoint, which it... You know, movies are a business. I think he needs to get over himself. No, Not a, no, no, hell no. No, I. <laughs> from a business standpoint, no, no. Okay, because it happens. It happens to everybody. 
to a certain to degree, to that that happened to everybody. To a certain degree, I'm going to agree with you because I've seen um, comparisons of what some of his frames, like for example, in The Shining when they're in the office, uh, and I've seen comparisons of what that looked like at the 1.66 and at the 1.85, and the 1.66 actually does look a little bit worse because there's just too much room, hmm. right? So they cut it and it kind of centers you and focuses you on the characters. But there's other shots in The Shining where it's like, yeah, he definitely paid more attention to framing it like that. And actually, an interesting one that maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it does. I don't know. But in the elevator blood scene, when one version where it's cut, you just see like the elevator essentially. But in Kubrick's version, you can see more of the floor and you can also see a chandelier. So it's kind of like if Kubrick, which is arguable too, whether he was such a perfectionist or whatever, like, you know, he put that was in the frame for a reason, you know, so I don't know. I want the chandelier. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, I agree too. I want to see the movie that, that he wanted to make. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not advocating for, <laughs> for the decision that, that this, you know, the result of, of this decision. All, all I'm trying to say is that that happens to everybody. And true, true. I think if you're a filmmaker, you need to know that your shit is going to get cropped. You know what I mean? I, I work in advertising, and the big thing that I do for one of the agencies is I take some of their content that they made and they put together, and it's really good, and I turn it into a 15-second segment uh, th- for that. So I cut out a lot of crap and just, I mean, it's all good and not, I, I don't cut out crap. I just, I condense it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And sometimes that means somehow making a four by three out of a six, 16 by nine. And that well, means why? it's going to get cropped. Why would um, you need to do that? Especially nowadays. Well, well there's cell phone screens, right? Cell phone screens are vertical. So that's one yeah. thing. So I don't know if you've seen the new, uh, ghost in the shell things that are on facebook but right. those are like super vertical and you can really tell same and with like a baby driver i think is doing that too and ba- yeah watch yeah. that looks so good i'm right? so excited for that movie uh but you know the for some of these commercials that i do they want things up on you know like the jumbotron at the seahawks games and that jumbotron is a specific size and it looks like crap if you stretch it out. So you have to crop it. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, in that sense. But you're not showing fucking 2001 or any clips of it on a Jumbotron. So, like, no, to a degree, I guess I agree with you. It's, the it's, a, thing, it's, a, it's a business. It's the difference I, between I, business and art. And when you have filmmakers who are in both worlds, you know what I mean, who are in art and business, you know, it's... I, I think you got to prepare for something like that. And you got to, like, you got to know that that's, that might happen. It might so happen like, in your movie. For me, like if I was Rupert Everett or Rupert Wyatt or whatever his name is, um, who did, who directed, um, Ghost, Ghost in the Shell, I wouldn't mind if like the trailers or the previews and or the commercials or whatever were, were chopped and stuff because no matter what you want people to go see your film, because if they right. go see the film, then they're going to see what you more than likely, you know, if it's in a th- big theater now, they're going to see the film the way you meant it to be shown in the right. correct aspect ratio, whatever. So right. for me, like if if it's a trailer or something on your cell phone or t- TV screen or, or 
you know, a tablet or computer or whatever, and it's chopped or cropped or whatever, I'd be totally cool with that as an artist, for sure. Cause no, it just because they're already putting up the perception that your film is going to be this race like not really because no, he, i don't think people look at facebook and say if i that's, show you if i have a film nine by six if i show you a trailer of a film that you, right now that i was making and i had it in a four by three ratio you would look at it and be like oh is this film gonna be four by three yes in, in that case exactly it, no so don't but if it's on that, facebook i think it's different but no, yeah, that's because I, I, I think like people are just scrolling because scrolling through and stuff, right? Because like, because like, I mean, but you then can again, scroll through and still have, especially again, with the white background or whatever, you can still have a white image. Yeah, and lazy fucking people turn your phone to the side. It's not that goddamn <laughs> that's, hard, that's, dude. That's why. No, that's why no. it's vertical. It's because no, everyone is lazy. I'm never. I know. It's I'm it's never it's, it's that's why there's captions. There's never. captions on it too. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate people don't flip their phone. I always I'm have to flip their phone because I want I want to get the widescreen cut. But at the same time, like I know that maybe just because I'm the filmmaker, like when I'm scrolling through Facebook and I see a Ghost in the Shell uh, thing, you know, and it's vertical and it's and it's white, I know that the film is going to look like that because I know that there's it's just not going to be. <laughs> it's not That's, going to be um, no, released no that one, way, you know. No okay. one believes so the, it. No so one's looking at, people at it and saying, are saying this are, is going to be this size. No, no one is. The doing same that. people that you are saying are going to be lazy and too lazy <laughs> to turn their phone are the same people essentially who aren't going to know the difference of whether or not a film is actually going to be that whatever wide ratio or if it's going to be True. square. But, I, okay. but they're also Dude, the type of people by showing but they're also, it, but they're also is no. 9 by 16. What, what theater the is people. taller than it is wider, man? That's what Everyone, I'm saying. No one's I'm saying that. So why would you put the trailer like... But they're, Dude, they're, you, it's also you this, scroll it's, through Facebook on your on a mobile dude, app. It's, it's catering to the audience, man. It's catering it's to the also, audience. It's also to the type of people, though, that are going to go see the film anyway. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, they're going to see Ghost in the Shell whether it's... Whether they actually think it's going to be be cut, or I want to meet the person that thinks it's taller than it is wider. I want to, this, I want to interview them before the movie. So and I'm not saying movie. I'm not saying they think it's going to be taller as it's going to be wider. I'm saying if you show a trailer of a film in four by three. Then you are going to assume that when you go see the film, it's going to be in four by three. That's what I'm saying. See, I totally won't unless it's like Wes Anderson or something. But you won't because you know film or right. you know the movie. But you guys are talking about the general moviegoer, right? And how having to cater to your audience. And I don't believe that people are so stupid that they need to like. I don't know. I have a pretty. I, I, don't, I, have a pretty... I don't believe the audience is that stupid, but at the same time, it's like if you present something as one way, you're going to assume that it's one way. I mean, that's if you, I don't. I mean, I, I, don't I, know, I know what to... you're saying. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get it too. I, I, I'm just I, teasing you. I, I totally get it. Like, yeah, it's it's interesting, and it, and it's a huge. Um, I was just reading. Ironically, I was just reading a whole article about this like yesterday about how the companies are, you know, studios are. Editing their content for cell phones and tablets. Yeah, you have to. It, which is, you know, it's it's it is weird and it's it's interesting, um, especially in in context with you know um, how to marry a millionaire and the great the Grand Budapest Hotel. But I don't know. It's interesting and yeah, marketing it, like you were saying, Jacob. Like the business side is is so interesting and like when you have a, a term like academy ratio. It kind of, you know, it does say a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah, it does. It does. Moral of the story is 
Turn your phone sideways, you lazy fucker. <laughs> God damn. It's not I that mean, hard. I, I agree Jesus with Keith. Christ. I totally agree. Oh, Turn totally. your phone sideways. Watch it the way it's intended. But right. if the, I mean, here's a time where you don't want to turn your phone sideways. If you're watching the new Baby Driver trailer and it's already vertical, so turning right. it sideways would make it smaller. Right. So <laughs> Don't they, turn it sideways. <laughs> like, I read a thing about that where they're trying to make it so that if you are watching the trailer vertically and you want and you are lazy and you want to see it widescreen, they're trying to make it so that if you flip it that it will switch yeah. to the widescreen yeah dude, yeah that's, that's cool yeah yeah which i don't know how they would do that what but like fuck? it would be pretty sweet okay i could do they get, have to like could get behind cr- that. export two videos maybe and then it just that's well no it's probably the same simultaneously no, and then it's probably switches? the same technology as um like uh you know when you can use your phone and watch a YouTube video and look around with your phone. Oh, the 360 thing. It's probably something uh, along the same lines where it, uh, it'll just read your phone. I was thinking know, about like, that. I was like, how are they going to do that? But it's, it's still, it's cool. Wonder, <laughs> it's a cool idea. That is cool. I wonder if they like, they, they, sh- they do it, they do the 16 by 9 one and then they crop it while it's going through Facebook, but it, it crops right. in specific, because lo- it has to crop in specific locations. Because you can't just crop the middle because it'd be all fucked up looking. You know, everything would be right, That's right. the hard part, yeah. They'd have to do this, like, you'd have to do one, like, essential pan and scan where the the version where it's more square, vertical, moves right. around the frame to get the, where the action's at. Man, think about all that work. How does that work? Like, like, someone, it's, someone's going to make some money, man. Right, Doing, right. Dude, someone it's, probably is making money. Probably or, just doing some that sort right of now. computer algorithm, you know, where they just type it in and it's like, yeah, automatic. I oh, mean, it's just nuts. Yeah, it's oh, crazy. Yeah. Someone's, so someone's going to make some to dollars. <laughs> someone's yeah. making fucking See, we're going to be millions. talking about film budgets next week, but it's just like it already had, the film budgets are so expensive and it already it's going to add so much more if they have to do that. Like, yeah. really? I don't know. But don't for, know, for the record... I think that the film. I want to see the movie that the filmmaker intended. You know, especially Kubrick, because he is one of the most auteuristic uh, filmmakers out there. Uh, so I'm not advocating for destroying art, <laughs> especially 2001. I do believe in burning books, though. <laughs> for the record, <laughs> especially 2001, though, man, you can't. You can't chop that movie up at all. You can't touch yeah. that movie. That not yeah, not in front of Keith. You know, <laughs> uh, unless you want me to cut off your hands or something. He, yeah, he'll, he'll do it. That's a uh, like you said, a travesty. I'm like getting depressed even thinking about I know, that one. Exactly. They, they, the, they did the same thing to like William Friedkin's um, The Exorcist. Did they? They would just do weird uh, ass shit to that yeah. film. Pan and scan, dude. Yeah, because yeah. that's the thing. TV was developed with the Academy ratio in mind. So for a long, long, long time, even into the nineties, everything was made in with that ratio. It took a really long time until really recently for it to switch to sixteen by nine. And and they had the full screen versions of all these movies. And it was someone's job to create the full screen versions of all of them. Pan and scan. Yep, man, I w- that job would be depressing. <laughs> actually, the book that I have, so the book I do some research out of is actually a textbook I got from uh, one of my classes called Movies and Meaning uh, by Stephen Prince. And it actually has sample images, and one of the images it uses is Dirty Harry because it shows 
Dirty Harry was shot like real, real widescreen, and it shows the version that it was shot in. Then it shows the example of what it looked like on film when it was kind of compressed and, and squished on the film. Mm-hmm. But then it shows what the TV version is like, and they basically there's two guys sitting in the frame, and they cut one out just so that they could have. Clint Eastwood in the frame and that's all they could show the first time I saw A Fistful of Dollars was VHS and it was all like you know full screen and I remember I just I love that film so when I I, when I had the chance I I got it on DVD and just being like oh my god there's so much more to this movie right you know when when you're watching in widescreen like oh my god there's a there's a whole other character there you know it's kind of crazy that's that's what that voice was (laughs) right right it's so weird you know that uh, that's not voiceover that's like there's like there's two two other people at the end of the bar that he shoots you know (laughs) (laughs) so actually that reminds me fun little fact about my ignorant past with films and tvs and tv and stuff uh I actually thought for a while that when a film, so when you look at a film on a, a wide TV, it's like that usual 16 by 9, but then you have, if you watch a, a 2.35 to 1 ratio, it's got the it's got the black bars or whatever, right? where essentially where there's no film playing. I actually thought for a while that your TV was supposed to like stretch that out to fill because <laughs> oh. I didn't think there were supposed to actually be black bars there right I was like yeah because like, I had no idea what it was and all TV's broken so, mom yeah I, give me I, a new one I thought the film or the the image was supposed to like zoom in or whatever to I, fill the black bars it's funny because you can't do that now with the zoom it just zooms the image in um, right, right, so like yeah. there are some people that for some reason the black bars just bother them so they they zoom their TV in but it still cuts off yeah, the stuff on the side or whatever. Yeah. You know? I, don't so it's like, I don't get it. I don't get why people yeah. do that. But. It's funny because it's not a black bar. It's just the image just is it's it's just, just like the, your TV yeah, is Yeah, this off. is what the image is. Yeah, 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 it's not a bar that's created or anything. Right. So, so I don't know. It's there's literally kinda... just not image there. It's so. funny. Yeah. Fun little tangents there for sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, pulling back around to Paramount and the 1.66 ratio. So basically, uh, Cinemascope had a ton of problems technically, so they were looking for ways to work around those problems because widescreen widescreen was created because of TV. People were not going to the movies as much. They were staying at home to watch TV, so movie makers needed ways to pull people back into cinema, um, enter Cinemascope. And Cinerama. So basically, there was this individual named Henry. He's French, so I'm going to butcher the crap out of his name. Shretan? Shretan? Something along those lines. Uh, He's a professor in France who had, back in the 20s, actually developed what you could basically call anamorphoscope or anamorphic widescreen. He was the one who kind of created that idea of squishing the frame onto a 35 millimeter strip and he he used things called hypergonar lenses to distort the image and then essentially use those when projected to undistort the image quote unquote which was essentially the foundation for cinemascope and uh fox was actually the first one to really push cinemascope uh spiros scorus 
the then president of Fox, uh, basically was the person to create CinemaScope. Uh, he he okayed the films to be put into production, uh, you know, with those lenses and that image and ratio in mind. Um, basically, the way CinemaScope again kind of works is it uses a two to one anamorphic lens to create the two point three five to one ratio. And like I said, all studios except Paramount basically raced out to to do that, where Paramount did the one point six six. So this is kind of where VistaVision comes in as well. So in Paramount's kind of bid to be different than everyone else, they developed VistaVision. So they took... uh, Did I get this wrong? No, no. Okay, yeah. So this is is what I'm thinking of. No, no, no. This is what I'm thinking of. So uh, basically... To create VistaVision, what Paramount did was they took 35mm film, literally turned it on its side so that it was recording at 8 perfs wide, right? So the perf the perf measurement is actually the vertical uh, side of the film frame because when the film runs straight through the projector. So they turned it on its side and essentially were recording at 8 perfs wide. This created the 1.85 ratio that we basically is the standard for today. And actually what helped bring this into popularity was Hitchcock. Hitchcock loved the ratio. A lot of his later films were in that ratio and it brought brought that into popularity. And it's, like I said, is that and uh, like 2.35 are basically the standards today like the 16 by 9 which is pretty close to 1.85 actually house of cards is exactly 1.85 i I think that one's two two to one house of cards yeah are you sure i'm pretty sure that and uh a series of unfortunate events is is the two to one way ratio are they two to one okay Uh, let me let me i'll double check i thought it was 1.85 but you know i could be wrong because so, 1.5, that's 3 to 2, right? That's this. 1.85. Oh, 1.85. Yeah. Here, I'll look it up. So just under 2. So basically, this is where Panavision uh, comes in. So funny, it's really interesting when you look at the history of the widescreen. Uh, is basically developed, evolved, and standardized in the span of like a couple years. So Panavision was started in 1954, and they started by manufacturing anamorphic lenses for cameras and projectionists. Uh, They were trying to fill a gap, basically, where there was a demand for the lenses, and there just wasn't enough supply. And eventually, as they were developing lenses, they basically ended up solving a bunch of the problems that were created with CinemaScope, and then eventually replaced CinemaScope with Panavision lenses. And nowadays, I mean, any movie that's shot on film, except for some maybe Ari cameras, I mean, the majority of them are shot on Panavision cameras. Uh, Panavision actually made specialized custom black cameras for the uh, seventh Star Wars movie. So that's pretty sick. And interesting with Panavision, too, if I believe this is the case, that you can't actually buy or own their cameras. You rent them. Right. You rent their cameras and their lenses from them. So any major motion picture that's shot on it is actually renting those, 
which I think is an interesting uh, business model to have. Do you have anything, Jacob? Did you find uh, anything? House of Cards is the. It's called Univisium, um, which is the two to one aspect ratio, which oh, okay. was created in order to create a marriage between the 16 by 9 ratio from TV and the uh, the 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 other one <laughs> uh, the two what is it what's the other prop? 2.25 2.35 yeah, 2.35 aspect ratio so it's kind of like trying to to have the perfect ratio that will fit both worlds that's really funny uh because later on, when I start talking about sixteen by nine, that's essentially why sixteen by nine was created as a yeah. as a media or a mean. This is like the new sixteen by nine sort of a thing. Yeah, yeah. makes sense because phones are kind of wider too. So and tablets yeah. are have their own ratio, or like you know, screen sizes and whatnot. Right. So yeah, so Panavision came in the picture, took the world by storm, replaced a bunch of uh, technologies, and then became basically the cinema standard today so basically the gimmick was on and the gimmick kind of was wearing itself out so filmmakers were like well what's the next step and then enters 70 millimeter film so 70 millimeter is exactly what it is is the double the frame size as 35 millimeter and so it's just a it's a bigger film strip which allows for a bigger area to be captured and allowed actually for wider ratios um so mgm 65 used 70 millimeter film to film ben hur's chariot scene in a ridiculously wide 2.76 to 1 so almost 3 to 1 ratio which is i mean that's absurdly wide uh, actually, I think three by one was what the ultra wide screen of Voyage of Time was supposed to show at. Something ridiculous wow. like that. Yeah, Dang. that's crazy. Really wide, um, and that's how Malik intended it. And that'd be so sweet if it that's was. That's what I thought too. That's why I was like, "Oh, cool! I'm glad I'm going to see this version," because it actually would have, you know, kind of worked into our topic anyway. So, MGM sixty five actually became Super Panavision seventy, which used a spherical lens. To create a 2.2 ratio, which was eventually used in Lawrence of Arabia. So, I mean, Lawrence of Arabia was like early 60s. So, in a span of about 10 years, things kind of evolved and grew real fast. And then that was basically the ratio for a long time, for like, you know, a couple decades. Until more recently, when 16 by 9 or 1.77, oh, again, so it wouldn't be 1.5, yeah, uh, basically came into the picture. And 16 by 9 was created as a geometric mean between the academy ratio of 1.37 and the 2.35 widescreen ratio. So they was trying to essentially create, find some some even standard where you could basically watch both on one screen and have the viewing experience be okay from both screens. Uh, so that's what where we're at today. Basically, the majority of Microsoft computers, 
computer monitors, TVs that you buy for any specific inch size are all 16 by 9 and 16 by 9 is where Ultra HD and 4K are going. So Ultra HD and 4K movies are all made in 16 by 9 even if the ratio is a bit wider because that's essentially I mean no one really has the square 1.37 TV anymore. Like it's really rare to see that ratio unless it's specifically intended such as in the Grand Budapest Hotel which used three different ratios to tell its story and put itself in a specific time so like, yeah you like that that was a nice that was, one that was a gorgeous segment <laughs> that was nice pretty job. good that was pretty good yeah, so our second film is Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, which was made in 2014. The film stars Ralph... Is it... Okay, is it Ralph Fiennes? It's a Rafe. Rafe Fiennes? Yeah, it's Rafe. Okay, yeah. Rafe Fiennes. Which is weird, but... <laughs> no, that's good. It, it, Rafe yeah, Fiennes a, or Ralph yeah. Fiennes. Ralph Fiennes. I mean, however you pronounce it, I guess. Rafe. Tony Revolori. Source... Okay, Sir, so, uh, Cersei. It's, a, it's like Sor- Sersha, I think. Sersha? Okay, yeah, that's Sersha. what I thought. It's, awesome. I, I heard that name and I was trying to remember. Is yeah. Sersha Ronan? Yeah, that's right. Sersha you Ronan. That's right. Work at an that's airport. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd be the worst substitute teacher. I just butcher everyone's <laughs> <Yeah>. name. <laughs> Sersha Ronan, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Edward Norton, Jude Law, and F. Murray Abraham, among many others, like Tilda Swinton's in there. Oh, yeah, Tilda Swinton. Uh, so it was shot by Robert Yeoman, edited by Bob. Barney Pilling and music was composed by Alexander Dupla. I'm gonna say Dupla, Duplat. It's French. I'm assuming. It was produced by Molly Cooper, Christoph Fisser, uh, Henning Molfenter, Charlie Wo Wobakin, Wobakin. I, I actually typed that out wrong. And Octavia Picel. And there are a lot of other producers. This film had a lot of producers uh, attached to it. Production design was done by Adam Stockhausen, and costumes were by Milena Conanero. It was produced by German companies and shot entirely in Germany for about $25 million, give or take. And the aspect ratios changed in this film because they were used to emphasize the times when the film takes place, so the, the film time itself. Uh, the most modern time of the film... His 1985, which uses the 1.85 to 1 ratio, the scenes in 1968 are in 2.35, 1 cinemascope ratio, and the earliest times in 1932 are 4, uh, is 4 by 3. And I believe he did this, I, I think it's likely that he chose it, these ratios for each time was because that's in order how they were created, essentially. Mm-hmm. Even though 2.35 and 1.85 were basically back to back it was 1.85 is one of the newer ones quote unquote it was like popularized it was like popular in that time yeah right yeah. exactly and that's the, the what, what cinemascope kind of died in like 60 in like the late 60s right they stopped using it well cinemascope died pretty fast and then it switched to like vista vision and the oh, visions gotcha. a version of it right essentially but the, the the ratio itself obviously lasted until it still goes on today. I mean, a lot of horrors shot that. Westerns are shot. A lot of action films. Uh, Star Wars is shot in the 2.35 to mm-hmm. 1 ratio. So it's it's still going for sure. Sure. And it's never going to go away. In fact, it's 
getting even more popular with those 21 by 9 super widescreen monitors and stuff like it's crazy <laughs> mm-hmm. crazy so yeah that was that's my spiel for grand budapest which is I, it's a really interesting choice to do that aesthetically because most of the film takes place actually in the four by three ratio so you know the majority of what you're watching is actually the square image which for a lot of can bother a lot of people for sure but it seems to work for the movie and i think was bold and yeah i think he pulled it off to be honest i well he got a bunch of awards for it <laughs> he did yeah he did and to be honest i noticed that when switching from the 4x3 to the 2.35 I mean, you don't really notice it he kind of just cuts to no. this the the framing story of jude law's character and f murray abraham talking in the uh you know when they're over dinner or whatever but i did notice that it's actually i don't know for you guys but for me it was a little more obvious when they cut back into the four by three yeah it was a lot more obvious too. when they cut back yeah yeah it's funny i i, I i've be, i've been beginning to see a little bit more of a resurgence resurgence in the four thirds you know aspect ratio like i don't know if it necessarily started with this film but um the uh american honey which was released this last year was shot that way or at least it was cut that way um i don't know if they did it in post or not but um it was released in that aspect ratio and same with um this awesome film called uh tenabre lux which is like this awesome south american film um oh gosh and that, I like, so it's 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 showing a resurgence in like the independent scene yeah yeah like yeah that, not yeah. so much like that what's so crazy about the grand budapest hotel is that you you saw this film in like you know in theaters yeah. um and it right. was like that which was great um, and it made an ass load of money for for its budget oh for like, sure yeah it did like, really well and it's like it's funny because like uh, Christopher Nolan for um, the Dark Knight Rises, I think even in I think in the Dark Knight too switches between seventy millimeter and seventy. Um, he yeah. shoot, he switches between IMAX. So IMAX I didn't talk about that. IMAX has its own ratio, right? Which is uh, more akin to this kind of closer to a square image. Uh, but yeah, you can see it. You know, like the opening shots are, you know, IMAX, but then like. He cuts in, especially in Dark Knight Rises. You can see where he cuts into uh, where mm-hmm. Gordon's talking about the, he's doing like the eulogy or whatever he's doing, and then or he's up there at the party or whatever, and it cuts into the widescreen, and then like there's lots of stuff with Joseph Gordon-Levitt where it kind of cuts out. And actually, a little fun fact is that uh, where did I write this down at? So I think the Dark Knight. Oh, actually, it's right here. Yeah. Uh, sorry, just a second. The Dark Knight was the first feature film to combine footage in two such different gauges, so the IMAX and the oh wow the two point five. Oh, yeah. That's in, that's fascinating. Right? It's kind of cool that's that they, you know that he started that. It, what's funny is like my brother, he noticed it really bothered him when he watched like the Dark Knight Rises the between switching between IMAX and the, yeah, it does it a like, lot. It, he it yeah. really bothered him, but for some it bugged, reason it bugged me too. Like he didn't, I didn't hear him complain once for uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's because it works in the Grand Budapest Hotel, like serves a story purpose. But and you know, even 
I, I watched I watched Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises at the Seattle IMAX back when it was film. But it was a film projector and not a because they're all digital now. And it right. had that big like the almost square, uh, th- you know, setup. And I, so when I saw The Dark Knight there, it was awesome because it had all these gorgeous like the opening scene is all shot in IMAX, you know. And uh, but then all the establishing like building shots because there's a lot of shots of like gotham in the dark night where it's just like panning or or not panning but like floating over gotham like looking down um all those are in imax but then in the dark night rises it's going like from it's like if two people are having a conversation it's going from like imax shot to a like you know the two point i think it was a 2.35 yeah i believe so um Anyhow, it was going, like, back and forth between those two, especially in the scene where Batman's telling Bane, like, where's the trigger? You know, like, that scene, I just, it it took me out because it was, like, this huge, gorgeous, tall shot, and then it was, like, drink, you know? And it was, like, burp, 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 and it totally took me out. It it hurt. Yeah, it's funny because, like, that, that film is kind of grounded in, like, a, a reality, you know? Like, it, it, in, at least in Gotham's world, you know? It, it's grounded mm-hmm. in that kind of thing. Whereas, like, Wes Anderson's film, you know, it's it's more nostalgic. It, it can get away with a little bit more, I think, because it, it has that kind of... It's like, it's this world, but it's not this world kind of feel. Right. You kind it's of little, buy into it. Sort of right, thing. right. Yeah. Like more, kind of like a, a storybook or it's animation. It's definitely storybook. Kinda. Moonrise Kingdom yeah. is like that. And I think his, that flat, uh, like, way he designs his shots actually works well in 4x3. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it... Because everything's so centered anyway. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what what really pulled... He he really pulled it off. There's a film called Mommy that was done by this young film director who's just... He's actually... He's quite... uh, It's quite impressive what he's done already. His name is... um, uh, Gosh, I forget his last name, but it's uh, Nolan... Nolan... Oh, man. I'm not sure. I forget it, but... um, Looking it up. Uh, Xavier, Xavier Dolan, I think is his name. Um, he's, I think he's French. Xavier Dolan. Yeah. Um, uh, 2014. Mom. He's just like, that film is cool. Um, it's shot in four thirds. Um, and there's not a lot of stuff that's necessarily centered in that film, but that film really works in that aspect ratio, yeah. but in a completely different way. Um, you can tell cause it was, it was a correction. It was actually shot one to one. Oh, one to one. Okay, a complete a, a complete square. Completely. Okay, square. that's wow. the, okay. Okay, cool. And he said it's not because of Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Another bad why good. videos are getting lopped off because Instagram. Fucking Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I actually really like that film and the how it was shot. Like it was cool. You should you guys should check that out. It's it's cool. Yeah, I, I I'd be interested a one to one movie. That sounds kind of yeah. And, and there's actually one section of the film where it 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 goes widescreen, which is cool. And it, oh, and it, and it oh, makes it cool. and it makes it so that particular scene so epic. I'm sure. Yeah. Like it's it's really cool. Yeah, it like sure. works. <laughs> that's like it's yeah. sort of like the single cut that's in rope where it like you know it it's just that one time they cut. Yeah. And so this is like the one time they. They fill it in. That's cool. Now yeah, I want to see like, it. Yeah, and it's like set to music and stuff. It, it's such an epic shot. Yeah, it's it's cool. You get, That's it's, cool. It's good. 
Well, you, you know, one of my favorite things that that uh, who's the filmmaker that does who's doing Baby Driver? What's what's his name again? Uh, Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. Yeah. In Scott Pilgrim versus the World, he uses aspect ratio, and and it's it's all done in post, obviously. Uh, but it's when Michael Sarah's character is like he's feeling alone, and he goes into like a desert. He like disappears into like a desert. You know what I mean? And he's like, "Oh, I'm so alone. I don't have a girlfriend." And the the aspect ratio starts as as it as it is. And it just starts, the the black bars just kind of start squishing him, you know, like the letterbox. Right, right. It gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner until it gets to like three to one. <laughs> and then Ramona comes, his like love interest comes out and she's on rollerblades and it starts like going all the way back as he's like, oh, like there's somebody. <laughs> and that to me is just like, when I first saw that, I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. That actually uh, reminds because me of- it totally works for the movie and it's. It's like just enough to where I think most people probably don't notice it, but it makes you feel claustrophobic and, and it's it, totally cool. And it adds to that kind of comic book feel to it too, which is yes. great. Yeah. It's like, it's which like, is, it's like the perfect, <laughs> yeah. Which is a big reason why that works, why it works kind of with the Wes Anderson's thing where it's the whimsy in the storybook, like of course you could change aspect ratios in this world because it's already a weird world anyway. (laughs) Right. Weird stuff happens. But what you just said actually reminds me of what they did in hunger games where, uh, I can't remember if it was the second or the third one, but, uh, basically the beginning before they actually go out into the arena or whatever, I don't know that much about the hunger games to be honest, but I do know that when she's like rising up on the the platforms rising her. Yeah. Yeah. It starts in widescreen and actually slowly because it was shot in IMAX slowly. The letterboxing, the black bars go up, up and up and up and then just go straight into IMAX. And it does it in one shot, and it just does it slow enough to where you kind of notice it, but then you kind of, if <laughs> yeah. you're not paying enough attention, like, there's stuff going on, right, on the right. screen, and it's just whatever face on the, on the screen, so, like, you know, you don't, it just becomes IMAX, and suddenly you're wow. just in epic, so cool. You know, like, that's, that to me, was, that's really smart. When, you know? when I first watched that, I had no idea that was happening, and that first scene, I was like, man, how did they make that feel so fucking raw, and, like... It felt like I was there, like, yep. and it was crazy, and it was like, where do I look? Like, what do I do? You know, and I really felt like I was there with the characters, and then I watched it again and saw that, and I was like, oh, those motherfuckers using that <laughs> aspect ratio. God, I love it. I just love it. Was that I in the first shifting one? Or the second ratios. one? So I've cool. never seen any of them, to be honest. It so. was the first one. The first one? Okay, cool, cool. Cause yeah. that, I'm not sure if they do it in the second one. Uh, the second one didn't capture me as much as the first one did, um, but... The first one definitely does it for sure. That's cool. Yeah, that first in that first one. That's funny because I never noticed that. But now that you mention it, there is that scene when she's rising up. Yeah. Right, right before Dude, the it, games actually begin. You know, that's we'll cool. pull it up. You can totally see it. Yeah, it's we'll pull it up. Totally cool. But uh, wow, well, I don't know how to segue into back in the ground. <laughs> Just do a raw. <laughs> Just do a, a blind 4 by 3 to 16 by 9 cut. So Just basically, it, yeah, that's basically what he does. You know, like, he, he kind of does what Nolan does, but he pulls it into his story as part of his story. Like, yeah. And I think, oh, that's what I was going to mention too, actually. Uh, the reason why it also works in his movie too is because they market it with that. Right. They said that yeah. in the very beginning that this movie is going to feature different aspects. So everyone was like, 
What does that mean? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. How's that? That doesn't. That's not a. It's so hipsterish. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, woo. Oh, and there's mustaches. That's totally why I love that movie. So hipster. So hipster. I I almost feel like Grand Budapest is more of a film bro movie though. After a a while, I think it's the most film bro of Wes Anderson Wes Anderson movies. I, I think that. I know. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. It, which is so unfortunate, though, because I love that movie. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great movie. Well, that's that's the thing is only great movies become film bro movies. That's I mean, that's the big problem. Yeah, and I would say just because it's like his more recent one too, like it's a little right. more like I don't know. And, film, and, and it received the most love, you know. But also like. What's what the movie and what's involved in the movie too is also more mature than like Moonrise Kingdom, so I can see it appealing more to like, you know, that film dude in, in you know, film right. class or whatever that is like, right. oh my god, are you, sh- are, you, are you showing him the? I'm uh, trying thing? to show him the thing, yeah. So it's in Grand Budapest is rated R, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. definitely <laughs> so many sex jokes. And this, is, I want to talk about this <laughs> in the review painting. too. Yeah, I want to talk about that in the review section, like more specifically the things I noticed on a second uh, on a rewatch. It's been a while. Does Fantastic Mr. Fox? Oh yeah, it does. Yeah. Does just switch when she goes out. Wow, that's event. epic. Is that it's, cool? It's such a. It's such a. You it's ne- so you subtle. Would never that's really it. cool. It's so yeah. subtle. Yeah. Oh. Dang. So awesome. I love subtle things in movies, and I love it when I notice them. <laughs> it makes me feel smart, you know? I feel like a smart guy. Does um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, does he play with any aspect ratios in that film? I feel... This is the only film he really plays with ratios. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Everything else is... I think he usually does... He doesn't usually do the 2.35. Oh, okay. Because he... So Wes Anderson is actually really his one of his big inf- obvious influences is Kubrick and with the framing the the single point perspective framing yeah yep um, so he likes to utilize a lot of the frame you know so that the two point three five doesn't really lend itself as much to him I I haven't seen to be honest I haven't seen his earlier stuff like his first like four films I haven't seen Bottle Rocket or Rushmore. Or Life Aquatic, or oh, Life Aquatic's um, good. Yeah, uh, the one right after Life Aquatic, uh, Royal Tenenbaums. Yes, thank you. Mm. I haven't seen that one either. Re- Rushmore is dope, dude. I think good. the only one I haven't seen is Bottle Rocket. Bottle, is Bottle Rocket good is good too. Yeah, it's super yeah. good. I mean, apparently all those movies are supposed to be good. I mean, I like the ones I've seen. I've seen Darjeeling and Fantastic Mr. Fox and Grand Budapest. Darjeeling is an interesting one. I haven't seen either of those. I gotta watch both. Fantastic Mr. Fox is my favorite, I think. Dark, oh, yeah, yeah I gotta watch it. Yeah, it's because so his aesthetic lends itself to animation right, and stop yeah. motion, right? Automatically. Right. So no, it, I, it just I works. can totally see that. I think Fanta- I think in terms of rating his movies, I think a lot of people put Fantastic Mr. Fox and Darjeeling towards the bottom. Unfortunately, I know that's it's true, and I yeah. like Darjeeling a lot. Darjeeling is one of his more like quote unquote real. Yeah, like, it's definitely stories. not as uh, actually that film is wide. Now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure that film is actually two point three five. Okay, yeah. I wonder why. I, I bet that's why people bring it down because it doesn't feel like it's his voice. Is that why? Yeah, not as much. It's definitely not as it's still like, very much his aesthetic with the very the. The up and down, left and right movement, and the the dolly right. panning. For sure, yeah. The panning on the on the you know like, 
there's that very specific straight dolly it, he it's has like a it's like, like robotic almost yeah, yeah it's like a robot's doing it yeah so i think it's just i mean i can i can see why it's a little more serious they're in a weird place it it, it takes a place basically all on the darjeeling the train and it just doesn't have the whimsy that people want from him i think it, it, this is a little change the topic a little bit but it's interesting comparing this film with how to marry a millionaire um it's it's cool that we did these two together like i i, I, I um but it's interesting because like i guess what i was saying before how to marry a millionaire involves a lot of like the characters interacting with each other but so does the grand budapest hotel so right. much so, so it's much interesting how they both are super successful at what they do but using a completely different aspect ratio however because the grand budapest hotel has more locations more more of its own world going on the viewer doesn't get so like the editing you don't really notice it as much right like whereas i think if you're constantly cutting in the same um like apartment or whatever like if 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 they did in how to marry a millionaire it, would, it might get a little boring or repetitive or mm-hmm. um or maybe even like a, a pattern you might start seeing a pattern whereas the grand budapest hotel like you don't notice that at least i didn't notice that i think um, the grand budapest hotel is just wait it's like this, it's fast too the right. racing and the music yeah it's going. very it yeah, it's quippy stop. it's, it's quippy. yeah whereas how to marry a millionaire it's not a slow movie but it's like you said without all the cutting it does you you tend to have to focus more and like the cutting i do agree with you if it would have cut around a lot it would have been way weirder it's weird because sure. they're roughly the same runtime i think yeah um which is close. which is interesting too i don't know it's interesting it's kind of cool though i just love how it just takes that one or two different little choices from from a director to 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 really uh I don't know how. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting to see like how aspect ratio has a play and all that. You know, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I I agree. I think honestly, I think these movies pair great together because they're so different. You know, right, we could have right. done uh, the the reef reef one. What was it called again? Beneath the twelve mile reef. Yeah, which apparently uses cinemascope in a more artistic way uh, than. How to marry a millionaire? Like they're supposed to be on the open ocean and stuff, you know. So yeah, like I, uh, critics say that it uses ultra vision in, in a unique way. Um, I'm not saying that it does or not, but because uh, I haven't seen it, but I, I feel like How to Marry a Millionaire could have not been a uh, cinemascope. Uh, that's just my personal opinion, and I still would have liked it. Uh, I think it would have been an entirely different movie, though be honest i i I guess it just depends on your idea of what or your definition of entirely (laughs) uh to me the movie how to marry a millionaire is good because of the stars and because of the writing and the costumes and to me that's kind of what made the movie for me i don't know if i mean it's hard to say whether or not Cinemascope and not having Cinemascope would change my enjoyment of the movie, and I. But my gut says that it wouldn't matter. I know what you but. mean. I I think 
Yeah, I know what you mean. That's that's tough for me to to even. It's hard, yeah, because it's because like it's something that doesn't exist, so it's hard to like say. But Cause I, yeah, because I, I really enjoyed the film, but I'm so used to older films that weren't shot like that, that are in that time era that that I did notice it. Like, I, right. and I think I would have, right. I think I would have noticed it even if I hadn't have known that we were doing this podcast about aspect ratio. I think I would have been, I was like, wow, we are seeing all three actresses in the same shot talking without any cuts as much as like, you know, um, cause I, I had just gotten done seeing, um, uh, gentlemen prefer blondes like a day before I saw this film and it, it was shot in the same year as how to marry a millionaire it has Marilyn Monroe in it. Um, and it's different because it's cut in it's in it's it is tighter like it's not as wide so it's it is oh, interesting. it is weird and i think maybe that's why because i had you know i had been watching a couple of these films i think i just saw to catch a thief with uh alfred hitchcock one two with Cary grant so um working what? my way up to how to marry a millionaire so like my i think my eyes or whatever were used to seeing something a little bit different than this you know um, that's fast. That's fast. What, yeah. what was the movie that you watched? I kind of want to watch it now. Uh, see. G- Gentlemen prefer blondes. Actually, I think you might really like it, Jacob. It's it's cool. It's different. It has uh, Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. Um, oh, it has pointy boobs. Pointy <laughs> boobs is in it. Wait, um, is she? Her character is uh, is definitely more entertaining in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, I think, than than she is in. Uh, how to marry a millionaire i think she's gotcha. good in both but yeah <laughs> i'll have to check it out yeah gentlemen prefer blondes yeah and i'll, I'll look for that i and, think it's on netflix i think it's how i watched it oh yeah. perfect yeah i'll uh next episode if i still think i'm right then i <laughs> won't say anything <laughs> but if i know i'm wrong i'll say something or if i change my mind <laughs> i will tell you and you will feel good <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know if you guys have any other things you want to say specifically about uh, the Grand Budapest. I, I don't know, like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I, it, I mean, it's so new, and I feel like a lot of people watched it, and the fact that it kind of... I, I hope that it opens up a world where people can think about aspect filmmakers sorry not people filmmakers can think about aspect ratios in a interesting way and i hope that th- filmmakers can just experiment with using different aspect ratios even if that means doing it in post you know what i mean like like the movie jackie with uh natalie portman had a pretty square aspect ratio. I don't know if you guys saw that, but I, I, I don't think it was four by three, but it was, it Probably was like um, 1.67 or something close to that. Yeah. 1. 6, or 1.5 even like it was pretty square, uh, for, for what it was. I actually should, should know what that is. Yeah, it's was. funny that that director's done some interesting stuff. Um, I like, I like Jackie. Um, I liked how it was shot. Um, and it was very reminiscent of that same director. He did a film called no, um, and that was shot all on VHS. Um, and it was just like a stylistic choice, but it actually really works for the themes of the film because it takes place in um, South America. I think it's Chile. Uh, 
in the 1980s and it's kind of yeah and it's kind of about um they use um vhs cameras in the film to shoot these protest videos and stuff so it actually fits for the film um oh i see that's yeah it's you you should really check it out i think it was um Nominated for Best Foreign Film Oscar, um, 2014, 2015. I saw it at the Telluride Film Festival. It was really good. Uh, has Gail Garcia Bernal in it and stuff. But I what, think that what's director, it called again? Uh, just oh. called No, just N O. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and oh, I heard it. I've yeah. heard it now. And it's funny because he, that director. Oh, he did Neruda, and he did Neruda. Yeah. Oh, so I he, saw Neruda. That Neruda was pretty good. Yeah. So like th- those three films, you can kind of tell that he's got an eye. And it's not a gimmick, like it, right. Like it's definitely there for thematic purposes. And what you were saying, Keith, is like, um, or was it Jacob? I'm not sure uh, about talking. You know about how these, how Wes Anderson, you know, this film uh, will hopefully allow filmmakers to play with um, aspect ratio or, or and these different, you know, film. Um, you know ways to see film but but yet not use it as a gimmick because i think that's important you know like um it has to serve the story just like how we were talking about about the long shot you know long takes you know um and how rope kind of seemed a little bit too much like a gimmick you know even though we did enjoy the film um yeah so it's kind of interesting how it's i think it's kind of the same same kind of thing for the aspect ratio (laughs) yeah no i i agree i think that if if the brand the Grand Budapest Hotel with as many merits and awards that it has received, which is awesome, and the money that it has received, I hope that that will encourage big studios, you know, the big six, to, uh, you know, understand filmmakers who want to do maybe something a little more experimental with aspect ratios, because obviously, if there's money there, then people you know then the studio's like oh there's money in this <laughs> aspect ratio thing let's uh all right let's do a one by one do you know what i mean like if i yeah, if we see like a big budget one by one ratio i would go see it like you know i went and saw fucking um that hardcore henry movie you know oh, what i mean right, and, that, right. and that was kind of gimmicky you know what i mean right but yeah definitely it was new yeah. And yeah. it was cool. I know. I enjoyed that film. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was fun to watch. And it was, it was probably the most headache inducing movie I've seen in a theater. Like, you know, more than Cloverfield and uh, Blair Witch. But it was uh, pretty fun to watch. And I paid money for it. So, <laughs> you know, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like people, I feel like sometimes the gimmick thing, sometimes it works. Uh, yeah, you know, you're, you're sometimes right. yeah. it's like this. This is a thing, and it's gonna be cool. Like Birdman was kind of gimmicky when it came out. They're like, "Oh, it's shot like it's in one thing." Like that was kind of its marketing, but that kind of was what made it special and what made it stand out. So, I don't know. I think I think gimmicks gimmicks can be good some sometimes. Right. Unpopular yeah, not opinion here. I have an unpopular opinion. But I I hate to <laughs> do it, man. I thought Birdman was. That's a piece not of an shit. unpopular opinion. I feel like, <laughs> like the, that unpopular that opinion is liking Birdman. Yeah, it did win Best Picture. Yeah, that's it uh, it's like definitely. I don't know. I, I got. I want to rewatch it, but I didn't enjoy it when I watched it. Dude, um, I've the heard only that part I liked was so the many people. Uh, that's I, fascinating I think, because 
most of the people I've talked to hate the drummer and hate Brian. I love the drummer. <laughs> I thought when they threw that in there, I was like, fuck you, yeah, because the music was sick. I really liked the music, actually. That's I that jazz music. Holi- but then they just, they just passed scary. by him all of a sudden. He's just fucking jamming away on the drums. I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, Jackie was actually 1.66, the aspect ratio. 1.66. Yep. And interestingly enough. So that's three by four. No, 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 or, no, 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 no. That's one point three three. It's more, it's the Kubrick ratio. Oh, it's it's pretty square, but it's I mean one point six six is right you know. to one. But one point uh, six six to one. IMAX's ratio is actually one point four three to one. Whoa, that's pretty square. Yeah, that is that's pretty square. Pretty square. And the reason I think IMAX works over a lot of other things is because uh, it's big, and you just don't notice the right. squareness <laughs> of it. You know? and, yeah, you don't really care. Because you also can't not, see the whole thing anyway. <laughs> right. And there's no black bars, quote-unquote, black bars. Right. right. Because yeah. it fills the whole screen. So, you know, that's interesting. You know, what was the first movie you guys watched where it had, like, a, where you noticed an, a crazy aspect ratio like this? Was there a movie for you guys? Because there was one for me. What's yours? Um, Hidalgo. <laughs> <laughs> when I first watched that, it was like crazy. Like it like, was. What do you mean um, by crazy though? Like, like it was, well, it was it was um, it, it just blew my mind how thin it was. You know what I mean? Like it felt so thin on the screen. That was a, that was the first movie I watched where it was like a, I don't I I'm not sure what ratio it was, but it, it was really high. Um, let me look it up. I liked how, I liked how you started like you the question was kind of asked almost like a like, like asking about please, our, please like, ask me the well, question. like about like our sexual encounter like our first sexual encounter <laughs> yeah, what was your uh, yeah. <laughs> so what was your first uh, what was your <laughs> first hand job in a theater <laughs> was it a white screen or a full screen what was the aspect ratio when you found it if you um, remember that's the problem I told I totally remember the first <laughs> film where I was like. Like I, where I, I was definitely I noticed that there was you know the black bars and stuff. Um, and for mine it was Spartacus. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, which ironically is done by um, uh, Stanley Kubrick, but he he hadn't he didn't start the film. Um, it was another director, and then he um, picked it up. He picked it up. So I don't know how creative his. Uh, like what say he had in the aspect ratio, but the, I believe the aspect ratio for Spartacus was two twenty by one, and then the then it was turned into two thirty five. Hmm. Yeah. So Definitely, yeah, that's I mean it's a historical epic, so yeah. those tend to use the wider ratios. I mean that's a, Kubrick did wide ratios prior to yeah. Besides Paths of Glory, I think was specifically supposed to be more of a documentary, quote unquote, look. Or maybe I'm thinking of uh, George. Is it George Lucas? Did he do a war film? Gosh, I don't. Some know. director like that did a war film where is like an early attempt at trying to be documentary. So it was shot like 16 millimeter, and you know kind of the typical ratio like they were trying to be all fancy <laughs> yeah i think i can't remember who exactly off the top of my head i think i saw like spartacus when i was in like third or fourth grade and i just remember i just definitely remember like oh wow like 
that's different yeah. you know yeah, like, <laughs> how does that work <laughs> i mean me personally i no, i can't think of i mean like i said earlier like i noticed the black bars and i always thought they were not supposed to be there but right i didn't i can't think of a quote-unquote first movie where you were like yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hidalgo was the 2.35 to 1 so that's that's not actually that wide compared to I mean it is wide but that's a pretty stand that's the standard right Did you see that film before or after Lord of the Rings uh, maybe maybe huh cuz that's that'd be interesting if you didn't notice it for Lord of the Rings but you noticed it I for think Hidalgo. maybe it was the first time I noticed it Yeah 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 that's interesting because I think for Lord of the Rings, maybe because it was more of a fantastical, you know, fantasy film, you right. didn't really notice it as much. But whereas Hidalgo is definitely, you know, in the desert, it's more of an epic kind of, you know what I mean? It has that more of that right, Lawrence right. of Arabia feel. So it might yeah, yeah. have like subconsciously, you know, where you notice. It's funny how your brain does that. Because like, obviously Spartacus wasn't the first film for me where I had seen something of that. But I would definitely remember that was I'm pretty sure the first film where I was like, there's something a little bit different about this movie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I, yeah, that's funny because I did see Lord of the Rings and, and shit, you know, before, because I saw that when they, when it came out, but Hidalgo came out in 2004. So I, I, I think you're right. I think it was like a weird, like my brain was like, may, may, maybe my brain was telling me that the movie shouldn't be in this frame in this <laughs> ratio you know what i mean maybe it was like a pushback you know what i mean yeah I it's know. interesting i don't know that's weird this, well, you could probably do like a whole like paper about like the subconscious like oh my god uh, and, and, and the aspect ratio. <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on just the subconscious while watching while watching whatever films yeah, that's and, that's yeah. super interesting i could have sw- i could have sworn that it was abnormally long like they did it in post or something like it was three to one or something um fun uh trivia question do you guys know what the biggest aspect ratio is and who did it and what's it for the the biggest one ever made Um, it's gotta be at least three by one might even be a little bit wider it's wider than that three point three point uh i feel like i've heard this like is it three point seven or something? It's uh, okay. I'll give you. I'll give you a hint since it's it's I definitely saw not this. coming. It's for it was built for three sixty video, three sixty oh, so viewing. Really new. Um, no, actually, it's it's well, it's it came out a, a while ago, maybe like forty years ago. Gosh, I have no idea. Okay, I will just tell you guys. It is from Disney, and it was their 360 viewing thing, and they put together a ratio that was 20 to 1. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that stupid? (laughs) Like, stupid. It's too much. Yeah, that sounds a little excessive. Wow. You can, like, spin around and fucking, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, well, that kind of fits into their whole theme park vibe, though. Yeah. That's what it. That's what More it was gimmick, used for. Yeah. Yeah. In their, in their. Okay, I'm sorry. Twelve to one. That was oh, wrong. Twelve to one. Twelve to one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 12 it was to one developed still wide. in 1955. Wow. And was used in Disneyland. It uses used nine four by three 35 millimeter projectors, and 
showed an image that completely surrounded the viewer and it, it was just used as a thing in parks it was called circle vision 360 circle vision 360. circle vision <laughs> or oh circarama circarama oh jeez great and it's like hey buddies do you want to go see the the new film in Circle Rama. <laughs> Circle Rama. <laughs> it just sounds, sounds so terrible. That, that doesn't sound cool. <laughs> film, if film bros aren't picking it up, then it's not going to be. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's open it up to the the review section here and kind of talk about what we thought about the movies. We kind of, you know, we tend to add it in as we discuss, but let's do it. Specific thoughts. Um, let's do it. I can start it off and say that I fucking hated How to Marry a Millionaire. <laughs> I uh, know. I thought that was a raging piece of shit of a movie, and I had to work my way through a bottle of whiskey to get through that movie. So uh, I, never, awesome. I, I bought it on Blu-ray because I was like, well, at least I should watch it. Might in as a well good, have it. In a good... No, it was more like... I didn't care about owning it as much as like, if we're going to watch it in CinemaScope, whatever, like, I want to get a good picture, a good remaster, right? So... I own it. Sad to say, it's going to sit on my shelf, but, you know, <laughs> as my collection of Blu-rays will grow, it'll be, kind of get lost in the other things that are around it, but, uh, no, that movie was just, a, is really dated, and I don't, it's, it's not, I'm not, I'm not a rom-com person at all, though, so, like, right. just, and I was watching it with my girlfriend and then a couple of friends, and they, everyone was kind of just, like, Especially with the, like, don't hit me line and the whole, like, we're going to find ourselves a millionaire and, like, just talking about, just this candid talk about, well, isn't the dream of every woman to not have to work or whatever they say? And it's just, like, I'm just kind of like, god damn it. Like, so <laughs> 50s, man. So fucking 50s. Like, That's so funny. Dude, because uh, I, I didn't see it that way. I didn't see it as... This is, I mean, it, it obviously is 50s, right? But I didn't see those aspects that you're calling out about the millionaire thing as a 50s, things, 50s thing necessarily. I saw it more as these characters have a problem. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> these are, because like that, that is like the root of all stories is, is, is that a character has an issue that the audience knows what the problem is and everyone else but everyone in the movie doesn't or the main character doesn't know what the problem is with that they have i mean and it's, it is the pursuit problem. of that that does cause the problems yeah it, yeah it's yeah, the I pursuit mean. of that and it causes problems but then in the end they all learn that love is not about money you know what i mean um, uh, so that's a good point to me it was like it wasn't like oh let's just go get some you know some dollars you know and until they bodies. all well it's that case until they all faint in the diner because he pulls out yeah. that wad of bills <laughs> to, that pays, was, that, he pays with a thousand dollar bill and tells her to keep the change right because <laughs> that felt like a Jesus uh, like a like a joke on on top of it like a you, you know i just i i love that moment because it was just like a a joke for the end you know what i mean like forget the theme type type of a joke uh which which i like it when movies do that yeah i guess it was a little tongue-in-cheek i don't know man it's just not my my usual cup of tea this is definitely one of those movies that i knew like when we watch you know because regardless of whether i like it i'll watch it you know because we're going to do the podcast and we're going to talk about it so i just i knew what it was when going into it and how it was going to feel um there's actually two things i'm c curious about that 
I don't know if I missed it or I misunderstood was one was they sold all the furniture, but then they got the furniture back. I don't, I didn't understand that part of it. Like what, what the fuck happened? Like, I don't understand. I think, didn't the guy buy it back? The, the oil dude. But then they sold it like again. There was like, okay, there was a weird, and maybe this was just bad editing, but it was like, at one point, they're like, Bacall's sleeping on a cot, and then she's got her bed back, and then there's a cot again, and then there's the bed with the wedding, when the wedding finally comes around. Oh, crap, I didn't notice that. Dang. It was, I didn't notice that either. Really wow. fucking weird. <laughs> it was really weird. I'm like, they're all sleeping on like shitty beds, but then all of a sudden, all their furniture's back, and all four of us were watching it, we're like... I know we've been drinking, but, like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> like, like really? Um, so I didn't understand that. I thought I'd miss something, but I don't know. You guys said you didn't notice it. But uh, the other thing I, I was wondering, and now I'm blinking. The fuck was I going to say? There's something else I was going to ask. And I we'll, we'll leave this part in where there's an awkward silence. <laughs> God dang it. It's funny. I think, like, Jacob, I think, you'd, I think you'll really like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Because... Uh, yeah, I think so, too. It, I, it has that, like, 1950s, like... It's even oh, it's even more ask. so than than this film, especially about like women and how they view men and and, and like you know uh, what they what they need to look for in a man and stuff like that. I mean, right. even how the men and the women are portrayed in the film. I don't think Keith would like it though. No, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember what I was going to ask. Uh, why were they modeling for that guy? That's what this used to what they. I, I think that's what they did. So he was looking for a particular dress. So, well. That's, Why were they he, chosen to? Mo- that's just what they do. Like, yeah, yeah. I think this is what they do. It's their um, job. That was their job. That was yeah. their job. Uh-oh. And I think yeah. he was trying to. To. He was looking for a suitor. For, he was right, looking specifically right. for. He set that. Oh, that's right. He set it up because he wanted Bacall. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, you, you know, one thing I loved about this movie is that the one of the main uh actresses eats a big fat juicy burger right in the middle of it <laughs> yeah she does like, huh? i was <laughs> like holy shit she's actually going for it you know what i mean <laughs> i thought that was cool because i i feel like you get a lot of actresses nowadays and you know they look at their big burger or macaroni salad that they're supposed to eat and uh they pick up know, the fries they're like eh, i don't want this you know right. what I mean? But she's yeah. just like, yeah, I got this. This yeah, is my She's burger. like all dreaming about that big sandwich <laughs> I know. and stuff. And they go awesome. back to it at the end. And that place is called the Greasy Spoon. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great name for yeah. a restaurant. <laughs> for uh, a skinny white girl to, uh, to go eat at. So. Speaking of the ending, though, too, what a... And film bros, what a bro ending that was too! Like they all pass out, and all the dudes are like, oh, "Women, and yeah, they yeah, they all cheer and they start drinking their alcohol." God yeah, right. <laughs> that, I hate that this fucking movie. movie. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, is like, but that was, but like, <laughs> but it was made in 1953. I know, yeah. I know, I know, I know. I get historical context. I get it. I get like, I have Doesn't to remember have to that. Like it. I have to, I, I don't like The Exorcist. I think The Exorcist is a fucking dumb movie, but I understand the historical context and why it is right. a scary movie. And yeah. like, you dude, know, I'm like, surprised you don't like The Exorcist as a, as a big horror movie. Dude, Why? I was... Okay, here's the thing. So, for a really long time as a kid, I would not watch horror. I found it. I, my mind would just always think about it. I was afraid to be in the dark if I had even 
glimpse at any horror. I was terrified to look at uh, Reagan in her demon form or whatever. So it wasn't until really recently, like just this past, I think it was like this year, a couple months ago, actually, it was the first time I watched it because I was just like, you know, for a long time, scared it, of it. Or it, it built, it built up this, it built up this huge height. thing. And then yeah. when I finally watched it, I was like, you don't give a shit. The characters don't matter. There's no development for the characters. The plotting was really dumb. The the crucifix scene was fucking awesome, but most of Reagan is laughable. Like the whole everything. I mean, I get it when she's saying I'm gonna fuck you and you're a stupid cunt and stuff like that. It's like okay, yeah. In 1973, when nothing else before that was saying that. All right, I bet you a lot of people probably passed out in the theater. I get that, but it's just like I don't know, man. I found it to be slow, boring. The whole story didn't. I mean, not the, nothing was earned by the end of the movie, and then I don't know. It's just. I, I, I don't I'll, I'll probably rewatch it at some point and maybe find something better in it but I just thought it was fucking dumb to be honest <laughs> well I disagree but I respect your opinion I mean most of the world will disagree with that the Exorcist yeah. is considered like the scariest movie ever made it's so. funny because like, like I don't think that's true because I've but. like I've never been scared in a movie like ever and, and I think it's just because it's I because you're I, a weirdo dude. well yeah I, <laughs> this is true this is totally true but I think it's because I can't I, I am so always removed from watching any films and like it also grew I think it was because I you know I grew up I wasn't really allowed to watch, you know, R-rated films or even PG-13 films. I didn't have TV, um, didn't have internet. So I was, like, completely my, – my, like, as a kid, I grew up with, like, yeah, VHS copies of Turner Classic Movies, right? And I read a lot. So when I heard stuff about, like, oh, and it was so bloody, you know, all you know, the gladiators are bloody and stuff, I was imagining so much worse – than yeah. what it really was that when yeah. I watched those films I'm like are you fucking kidding me this is nothing so like I can't get into a movie ever and get like emotionally invested or feel anything really in in, in films yeah. um but like The Exorcist like yeah I mean that movie wasn't scary at all but like you Keith like I can I can see the I can see like damn like for 1973 there was no other film that had anything like that or whatever you know like even The Shining came like seven years after that right right like it was wow and I that's exactly why nowadays I can watch horror and actually love horror more than most genres because I am so removed generally I I I'm with you where I find it hard to actually be in a movie. That's why I really love tree of life so much because it actually was one of the few movies that just like took me in. Yeah. It immerses you more. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. um, the other things too, that helped with the horror was one learning how to make films, which when you learn how to make a movie and you really build it as your craft that you want to master, just from watching movies changes. And that's, it was a problem that Orson Welles had, and that's why he said that books were the perfect medium because you can tell the best stories and it, you're always going to be up to your imagination, whereas the filmmaker's always yep. creating things for you. Yep. And the other thing that helped me get through watching horror, uh, <clears throat> I still do it now for different reasons because I actually find a lot of horror funny, but laughing at, laughing at it. Just laughing at something scary on screen helps to avert a lot of fear and just laughing in general is if you just laugh spontaneously it actually just ups, lifts your attitude up and right, psychologically right. just yeah. that's an actual thing so mm-hmm. uh, for, when I started to watch horror I just found myself laughing at it and now I actually just laugh because I think like I said I think 
fucking horror no, some horror yeah, funny yeah. like <laughs> she just got her head chopped off yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, like, actually the only one that I really couldn't laugh at that, and that's probably why it stuck with me too uh, is Cannibal Holocaust that one's a little hard to laugh at that but, uh, yeah you can't really laugh at that one you really can't and you know why I'm, my theory is because of the score the, I, I think it's the music uh, that makes that movie that gives it the tone that makes it extremely hard to watch. Like I think all the realistic stuff is is great, and but I I honestly think that weird jarring score is why that movie is super freaky. You know. Also, you can't. I mean, the mixture of real animal death and fake human death. Like, yeah, you can't no, tell what's yeah, right, real. Right. You know? yeah. Knowing the and knowing like the history. Yeah. Of, the fact that they went and killed a bunch of animals yeah. and and you know that's it's like why a five it says, minute long tortoise de-shelling scene like it's fucking brutal yeah. <laughs> and I, I really look forward to actually talking about that movie because the production of it and the production history is actually really interesting it's so really fascinating so yeah. we will and be talking even, about that even afterwards like with with the actors and everything like what what happened afterwards with the lawsuit and everything super fascinating yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about there's a topic uh, that I've been trying to develop and I, I believe I have it in two parts because there's four movies I think I want to talk about that's one of them and uh, August Underground's Mortem have you ever heard of this movie? no what's that? yeah uh, look up the trailer I don't want to say too much about it I would say look at look up the trailer it's August Underground's Mortem M-O-R-D-U-M uh, it's a exceedingly low budget shot on videotape uh, like terrible, terrible, terrible quality, like Trash Humper style, but worse. Oh, nice! And it's an extreme movie, like really extreme. Um, and that's one of the movies I, I have on our list to watch, among a couple others, with Cannibal Holocaust, because it's just, the idea is this blending of snuff. I think is actually on that list as well, because it's this blending of reality and non-reality. And whoa, how do you? How can you tell sometimes, you know? Uh, I'll pull up the trailer for you. Oh, after sweet. This cool, so cool. Look, I'm watching it right now. It's brutal. It's really Dude, brutal. This is, uh... <laughs> oh, Byron, it's your masks. <laughs> no way. Yeah, <laughs> your masks are in this. Pretty sure, the yeah. white ones. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit, sweet. that's a Byron mask. <laughs> it's brutal, man. It's really brutal. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, would really, I don't want to go too much into Cannibal Holocaust because it's a really... It's a... Oddly enough, a special movie like it's a oh, yeah, really sure. very yeah. particular movie. So, um, <clears throat> but I think uh, in terms of Grand Budapest, I think we all unanimously pretty pretty much like that oh, yeah, movie. For sure. and I think most people really dude, like this. That is movie. gross, dude. I told you, it's told you, it's it's fucking it's intense. <laughs> but it's 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 a fictional movie. It's not real, right? But I know. Well, yeah, obviously. Its presentation is so... It's it's a home movie is what it looks like. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah it's totally home movie. Like Trash Humber. That's, that's why I love Trash Humber. Trash Humber. They're like all like... They're like Perfect. slapping those, you know, uh, prostitutes' asses. They're like obese <laughs> and stuff. And they're just like... It was fantastic. I was watching Loving that at my, at my parents' house. And my mom walked in the living room as I was watching. She's like, what the hell are you watching? But she couldn't, she couldn't look away. She was it's, so fascinated. It's so... In, the movie is yeah. like... It, it, it grabs you for yeah, sure. Trash Jumpers is awesome. I love that's that. That's fascinating. One of the few movies I have at five stars on Letterboxd. That, that film was it's, like it's, 
controversial because like it won the best documentary award at the berlin film festival i believe mm-hmm. or maybe it was and i think i think it was berlin film festival but be, it, but it really isn't a true documentary so like they were up against like you know these like holocaust documentaries and stuff and it was like controversial because they're like oh it's not it's just because not real he does that stuff. thing where he uses real people right and then yeah. he does that in gummo i think actually trash humpers is on that list of real or not uh because it's so mixed in with that yeah because it's know? like it's 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 his wife it's him and like two other friends that are the old people in the masks the trash humpers and then everybody else are like pretty much all real people that he found on the street i gotta watch this movie <laughs> dude trash humpers is amazing trash dude, humpers it's, is it's so harmony crin man he did gummo it's like spring breakers too. like it's a it's like a comedy I, it's like it's a found footage it's a found footage comedy horror movie yeah it's so good um, dude they're just upping trash they dude, do. It's, for like yeah, it's amazing. It's so weird. Dude, it's amazing. Love it. I love it. And it's like, so good. There's like some epic scenes in there. Werner, okay. Werner, Herzog, Werner Herzog basically said, because uh, Harmony Korine likes to quote this a lot, but he's like, Werner Herzog basically told me that I'm the last warrior in the film army or something because Harmony Korine's making like the most real like spring breakers dude like half of that was real like they put themselves in kind of real situations oh, was, that, that was that harmony corinne yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Breakers? yeah. yeah. dude yeah. i love spring Breakers. Dude, exactly I know. That Man, harmony so corinne is seriously one of my one favorite, of my favorite <laughs> film directors yeah. of all time i mean he his stuff it's like it's like if you know what's up you know who harmony corinne is you know like his stuff is like so fucking awesome i mean every the music videos he's done the stuff that he did uh for mtv Ooh, with david Wong. blaine yeah, yeah. the the, the and stuff yeah. yeah uh man so sick uh crazy he's so good ah shit um so good uh so there's something i wanted to talk about with wes anderson in this section but no i can't really remember but uh one thing i noticed in grand budapest on the second rewatch is how much shit that guy gets away with all because it's wrapped up in whimsy and like this storybook telling of things like grand budapest has freaking well it refers to sex he has <laughs> he loves old women and has sex with old women yeah painting obviously of the chick fingering the other chick <laughs> the yep. violent the stabbing like the guy the one of the prisoners who stabs like four guards and then gets stabbed himself like brutal like the the big guy in the cell who grabs the guy and like breaks his neck or whatever to keep him quiet like really and then Willem Dafoe like Jeff Goldblum's fingers get cut off and then he's found dead and Willem Dafoe like shoots like shoots people and like this weird violence and then they say fucking shit like all the time it's kind of like uh like Grimm's fairy tales is kind of how I took it you know yeah it's like they're four it's like four kids but yet it's not you know yeah Exactly. Yeah, no, it's yeah. it's played off like it's four kids, and that lets him get away with. It's I almost like that. the concept of animation, where in animation you can get away with a lot more because you don't find it as lewd for an right. uh, animated character to say something as opposed to a live actor saying it. It's another reason why right. uh, gore works on screen, but gore doesn't work like on stage because it's just too real. And he's found this way of being whimsical and moonrise kingdom kind of touches on this a little bit but not as much because it is a little more kid like but with grand budapest he was just like all the way of like trying to be like adult but still keeping this like whimsical outlook and that also lets him 
have a lot of melodrama that works like Willem Dafoe is a totally melodramatic evil character Adrian yeah. Brody has like spiked hair black everything and he's like the, the mustache Poe-esque and like they're basically all Nazis and like it's so melodramatic evil and he's literally not good at all and there's no <laughs> redeeming factor to him and yet here we are and he's like not a bad character you know what I mean Willem Dafoe is like yep. not a bad character so it's like the shit that he's able to get away with because he makes these weird whimsical movies is really impressive oh yeah definitely yeah it just works with his voice you know what i mean and i think i think it was james cameron i may have said this on the other podcast but i'll say it again um james cameron said that people like his style not for what he's good at but what for what he's bad at and i think that's true for a lot of voices in in the filmmaking world because like wes anderson has a lot of strengths um but he's able to find this realm where the things that he's not as good at was still works with the movie you Mm -hmm. know what i mean so he's like found the style that work that that benefits his strengths but also like kind of hides his not like the, the things that he's not as good at yeah um and i think that's fascinating and i think the grand budapest hotel is one of his better movies i gotta watch uh the rest of them but uh yeah i feel like it really he he's like found this realm where his like the things he's not good at are you know on the down low sort of a thing yeah and and some people even would say that like the things he is good at which is like his his style his look his auteurness if you will, uh, are almost to a fault. Like some people think that's like, because he doesn't break from his own convention really at all. So like, it, it's, sometimes it is maybe to a fault. Yeah, it's like I, I know what you mean. Like I felt like that for Moonrise Kingdom a little bit, but yeah. I didn't really feel that so much for Grand Budapest. I think because it was even more of like his world. I think it's more dynamic. And too. more dynamic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Moonrise Kingdom, I was like, okay, it's like we, we, but then again, you know, it's one of those things. People go see his movies because of because of that. Um, I think Moonrise Kingdom highlighted something different in his strengths too, where he he kept his conventions, but the strength of Wes Anderson is that his characters are his his most his strongest characters are essentially children who are adults. Or adults who are children. It's never adults who are adults. And right. I think Grand Budapest gets, I mean, what is it, Ray Fiennes? He yeah. is an adult who likes to be an adult, but he's kind of got this kidness to him. His, his The way he kind of is so into life and yeah. just kind of into his whatever, he kind of takes things sort of carefree but cares about people. And I think... You know, it's more it's it's more focused on Moonrise Kingdom. I think that idea of the kids being adults, especially with like the troop and stuff like that. So I I just think they they focus on different things. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, cause, like Saoirse Ronan and the the um, the main the kind of the main character, the uh, sure. the bellhop guy. He uh, zero. Yeah, yeah. He's um. Th- their relationship is actually more like adult like than what then Ray finds with Tilda Swinton's to me mm-hmm. like cause, like th- th- that seems just kind of I don't know like 
I mean, it's, it's Ray finds that Tilda Swinton's relationship is way weirder. <laughs> right. Auto, I mean, just physically. I mean, they make Tilda Swinton weird looking. Yeah, yeah. Like they do. So like it's it's. I don't know to. You're you're almost well. You're always rooting for Zero, right? And then you're always rooting for her, especially because like. I mean, she they give her like the birthmark or whatever, but that's more endearing than yeah, yeah, weird, you know. So like you, you're always rooting for the the younger, the young love, the young yeah, pure yeah, love. I think that's what it is, which too. is like Moonrise Kingdom too, exactly, a little bit, you know. Exactly. So, but yeah, I think I just think I mean he, it's hard. He he has a hard time combining all of his strength. I think Grand Budapest is, I mean, since it's his newest film. His most recent film, you know, it, it combines them pretty well. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know. That, I think, I mean, honestly, I think Grand Budapest Hotel might be his most balanced live action film. I would say balanced, yeah. Like, it's just, yeah, it has, that's it's, a like good word. The, it's like the perfect amount of everything that makes him great, I yeah. think. Um, whereas Fantastic Mr. Fox is my favorite, but it, but like you said earlier, the animation it just is so perfect for his world that. I can't really count it. Have you seen any images for his next movie? I don't think I've seen any images. I think it's animated again. Oh, and it's weird, a weird art style, oh, and it's cool. about a World War Two like soldier, like Japanese soldier. Or something. Oh wow, yeah, oh, interesting. Look it up. It's really weird art style. Oh um, man, and I don't. I, that. I, I think they're doing like you know like animation, not like the stop motion from Fantastic Mr. Oh, Fox. Wow. So. We'll see. That's interesting. See yeah. how it's. I think he's Isle gonna... of Dogs. Yeah, Isle of Dogs. Exactly. Whoa, it's weird looking, right? Poster is weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting to him going back, especially if he continues on this route of adding in adult themes and adult concepts into animated kind of childlike worlds. That'll be an interesting yeah step forward. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to say about Grand Budapest? I thought Edward Norton was way out of place in that movie. I don't know. His delivery of lines is weird. He's supposed to be German. I'm like, I don't understand that. Now like that said, you mention that, that is kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't really notice that, but now that you say that, I can. I guess I kind of agree. Edward Norton's always hit or miss for me. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of funny. I don't know. Like, sometimes he's, he's like, really good, and then sometimes I'm like, eh. You know, <laughs> he'd usually take it. He's just after I heard the story about American History X, where he forced them to change the ending. I'm always kind of like, I don't know how much I like him. I kind of just like to try to take him at his face value in a movie and not think about him too much. You know, I can't imagine Fight Club without him. You know, that type of thing. Right, right. So, I I really like Norton in uh, in Moonrise Kingdom. I thought he. I, thought I think that, he worked really, better there. That's true. Yeah, I thought that's true. He was really good in that. Yeah. One. He kind of played a similar character, though. Yeah. And maybe that's why I thought it was weird, because he didn't... I don't know. It, Especially in the part in the train where the German soldier walks in, and he's like, you know, papers, and he's talking in, like, with this German accent, and then you have Edward Norton walking in, and he's speaking, like, perfect English. And I'm just kind of like, okay, well... You know, like, I, I don't know. Like, why did he choose for him to do that? Why did Wes Anderson choose for Edward Norton to talk like that? Essentially, it's it's weird to me. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know. But uh, yeah, I don't know Inside. if I have too much to say. Wes Anderson really likes trains. I know that. I mean, yeah, tra- yeah. trains are so cinematic. 
you know yeah it's and and they're perfect for for him because it's it's just the left right you could go on top of the train you can go down the train but like really like they just are perfect because you can only go one direction you know so they're they're kind of perfect for 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 movies that's true also did you guys know notice the light changing when they're in the dine when they're in the dining hall with so Jude Law and F. Murray Abraham, when they're talking, the light just changes, like, in the frame. Like, there'll be a really bright light on them all of a sudden, and then it'll cut in, and then suddenly the light will just, like, the light, the bright light will just kind of go That's away. That's true, yeah. And I yeah. was like, why the hell are they doing that? I didn't know if that was, huh. like, a chandelier or something up top that was moving. or Gosh, like, I have to revisit that. I don't know. Just the thing I noticed, I didn't really look into it too much. Did it seem like, did it feel like a mistake or did it feel like they were purposely doing this? Oh, it felt intentional, yeah. It was like, okay. it was like I remember it distinctly because they would do the two shot and then they'd cut into F. Murray Abraham and then it'd be a really hard contrast because it'd be a really hard light like on his face and then the light just faded away and it was like three seconds or four seconds after they cut. So it was like an intentional thing. It wasn't they were just like, oh, dim the lights. Oh, we're shooting. You know, like it didn't feel like a mistake. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Wow. I don't know. You can probably. I, I'm sure if you if I googled it and actually took the time to look, it yeah, pop up. But I I didn't. I was just something I noticed. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if I have too much to say. We're kind of getting close to that three hour mark. I don't know. Is there any other movies that you guys watch that you want to talk about? Yeah. What did I watch? I'm trying to go see Logan, I think, tomorrow. Oh, dude, Logan's so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, Logan's sick. But I watched, yeah, Voyager Time, Tree of Life. I think that's all I've had time for this week, actually. I really, I you know, I've I've just been playing Zelda, but I did watch, which is awesome. (laughs) Still still playing Zelda. So much fun. So good. Um, But I watched The Nice Guys, and I actually really really enjoyed the nice guys I it was really <laughs> <Yeah>. good <laughs> but like buddy cop uh type of thing but they're like pis you know the best scene uh, in that movie is the one that they showed in the trailer where he's in the bathroom stall that's the best yeah. scene. <laughs> that was amazing <laughs> ryan gosling's character is amazing and so is russell crowe i mean having a character who's like or the two characters they don't really know what they're doing but one is smarter than the other you know what i mean but like Ryan Gosling's daughter in that movie. She was slick. Is like the smartest person in the game. <laughs> she yeah. is, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Which is amazing. <laughs> uh, which is, that is kind of Wes Anderson-y a little bit. Making the, like the child the, an adult. Yeah, having the, like, almost like a role reversal type thing. Almost like what they do with South Park, where, like, the kids are, you know, the town is dumb as balls, and then the, the kids are, like, the smart people. Yeah. I love the scene where she's with the porn star or whatever. They're just watching the chick's porn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's like, what the? You should not be watching this. How dare you show this to her? <laughs> so funny. I, l- I, love know, just... I love how that movie, like, it starts. Because it starts with, like, the kid who's going to get, go his get dad's a porn porno stash. mag. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah, his, yeah. from his dad's stash. And then the same porn star that he's looking at comes crashing in in a car. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's just like... Huh? And he goes and puts a jacket on her. I don't know. I I feel like that was such a cool way to start a movie. And there's so many scenes in that movie where I'm like, that is just a cool way to shoot that. 
scene or that is a cool way to like that's like an interesting way to do that scene even even if it's like a a, a line of dialogue or or just like how they shot it like there's always something neat or new or different about how these scenes play and i th- i really liked it for that it's kind of cool because like shane black is kind of like a quentin tarantino to me i think he, he he's got such a, a vast knowledge of film that yeah. his films kind of show it but i think the nice guys he blended that kind of modern um, feel with that 1970s caper kind of feel perfectly you know and even that yeah. shot at the beginning um where you know before he puts the coat over the the topless you know porn star uh it like lingers on her breasts just a little bit too long <laughs> where like mm-hmm. the audience like it's like it, it, it's like you're aware that's like it's almost a little bit exploitive because it's like it's a porn star but she's dead and you're also seeing it through the eyes of a child like but yet it's but then he puts the blanket or the jacket over her and it's so touching but but that you almost immediately forget that you were basically just like like that it was totally sexualized two seconds ago right right and and it's that perfect like it's that weird thing that they did in the 70s and 80s um where, like, you know, girls are, like, taking a shower together, right? And, and then all of a sudden it becomes this bloodbath that freaked everybody out. You know, it's, like, it's interesting how he plays with that. But but it was a big a big film that was in theaters. You know, I don't know. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought it was fun. I th- we saw it in theaters. And I think it gets overshadowed by his own films. Right. You know, to a degree. Because Lethal Weapon and Iron Man 3, I think. Right, yeah. More popular or whatever. But... No, he's a good writer for sure. And Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, obviously, is <laughs> yeah. a good one right. to watch for sure. What else do yeah, you I'm got? curious what, what, else, what he's doing in the future. Does he have any projects uh, that are in the public's eye at the moment? Do you guys know? I'll look him up. don't, to be honest. Gosh, man, I, f- I don't, yeah. I don't know. While he's looking stuff up, did you watch anything else? Man, I know I did. I just watch so much stuff that I it all kind of blurs together sometimes um I've been mainly thinking about Logan I mean I, I, I watch Logan I've been thinking about that quite a bit I just love that kind of I just love films that are kind of like you know Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven where it's about an older character who has lived a life of violence and now has to not necessarily pay for it but he has to live with what he's done um and it I I like that aspect of Logan. So I've been kind of thinking about like that type of film and um and stuff quite a bit. I really enjoyed Logan quite a bit. I mean, it has its faults too, but I mean, we can talk about that film probably at another date, but yeah, I, I really it. really enjoyed that film. Dude, um yeah, did, I got to watch it. I'm excited. How does Robert Bohorkas find movies? How how did he see Raw? I want to see Raw. I haven't. I looked all over the God, place. I want to, to see Raw, Raw, man. That looks so freaking sick. What the? F- <laughs> that movie looks so good. Just go on uh, Facebook Messenger and type in Bahorquez if you can spell it, <laughs> and then you'll find it. Dude, that movie. That looks... at, and then ask him how he saw it. That's how you find it. I need to. That movie looks fucking awesome. I really want to see that movie. So, okay, Shane Black did, is doing. The new Predator movie. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. And then he's doing a movie called The Destroyer, um, which 
Wikipedia doesn't have an article on, so I don't know anything mm-hmm. about it. Um, and then he's remaking Doc Savage. Whatever that is. That sounds you familiar. That is? No, I don't, it sounds no. familiar, but... It kind of sounds familiar. Huh. So he is, gonna be, he is doing stuff. He has three projects. One is for sure is happening now that's pre- the yeah, predator. predator and then the others yeah. are are in i'm maybe they're greenlit i'm not sure being tossed around you guys mentioned being tossed around james cameron earlier it's funny i guess he's producing a film that robert rodriguez directed or maybe the co-directed i'm not sure um called alita i think it's alita alita battle warrior or something like that and it's based on a manga um but I believe it's already filmed. I think they filmed it. It's a pretty big cast, like Mahershala Ali, you know, who just won the Oscar uh, for Best Supporting Actor, is in it and some stuff like that. But it's not going to come out until, like, 2018. Oh, dang. But they already, you know, they they filmed it a while back. So I'm kind of curious how that's going to be. I think it's all, it's all going to be, you know, pretty much CGI. <laughs> but it's like it's live action, but everything else is yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know a lot of how a lot yeah. of films are made. Yeah. Alita is it called Alita? Yeah, I think yeah, Alita Battle 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 Angel Battle Angel. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So that seems interesting. I just kind of heard about that, so I was like, it has oh, Christoph Waltz in it too? Right, that's it. Yeah, it's a big cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is a big cast. Well, should we wrap really, it up? Really big cast. <laughs> really big. <laughs> <laughs> Should we wrap it up then? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Let's do it. Oh, uh, also, what was the rating on the Millionaire movie? Was it rated R? <laughs> no, it was PG. Probably PG. Oh, yeah. it was. Yeah. But you watched it, Keith. You watched Well, uh, yeah, I'm watching it for the podcast. Of course I watched it. There's going to be a lot of PG movies and PG-13 movies that we watch for it. I think uh, Furious 8 is going to be PG-13. And yeah. So yeah, Ghost in the Shell. Pretty sure it's Which is unfortunate, good. yeah. But I know. I wish it was R. Yeah, see? You guys are... That's what I'm saying. R movies are better. I no. don't know. NC-17 no, is R the R movies best. aren't better. But... It, is, it depends on the film, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think an R-rated Ghost in the Shell is more appropriate to what the original movie is. But Yeah. And I feel like the PG-13 is just to... Get more audience that's members. That's exactly what it is, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. It's expensive but, movies. So that's why Logan's so good. Because they finally went Because hard, they were yeah. like, the director was like, listen, this is what we're going to do. And, like, you know. I think and like, Hugh Jackman pushed oh, forward, too. Yeah, he did. Yeah, so yeah. that's why oh, it really yeah, happened. I bet. Yeah, oh, I bet man, dude, it's so much better that they're not, they weren't restricted, you know. They did exactly what they wanted to do. And, you know, I don't know. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I that's good. I keep meaning to see it, so probably will I, like I said they're planning to probably go see it tomorrow so and then, oh James Mangold yeah that's yeah the director what yeah he did like done? walk uh, walk the line and oh that was good yeah Kate and Leopold and uh, 310 to Yuma yeah 310 to Yuma and then he did the Wolverine <laughs> that makes sense because yeah isn't Logan kind of like a western yeah kind of? yeah it's like this western slash post-apocalyptic yeah. slash kind of you know semi-futuristic kind of like looper yeah a little, a little bit exactly. which is one of the reasons why i liked it so much i love that type of world you know mm-hmm. yeah oh that's cool my friend is like that it, with the in the superhero genre type thing yeah my friend described it as children of men but with claws <laughs> like superhero children of I mankind guess, yeah. that's funny yeah yeah 
Okay. Well, it takes us to the end of the show. So if you have any questions, suggestions, opinions, or if you have any fact corrections, if we got anything wrong, go ahead and send an email to btbfilmspodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our website once we get it up and running to comment on or discuss this week's episode. Uh, next week, we'll be covering The Evil Dead. So Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead and... Uh, Crap, I'm blanking on the director, the new Evil Dead. So we'll be talking about the original Evil Dead and the remake. And we're going to be focusing on film budgets and kind of the difference of budgets, how they affect films, what low budgets can do, and creativity around working with low budgets. Uh, So, yep, that's what we're talking about next week. Make sure you watch the films, be a part of the discussion. Thanks for listening, and happy viewing.